בשם השם נעשה ונצליח, שיעור תורה, גוטי בי מיאמי, ברוך השם, sorry a little late, but ברוך השם, not too late. We have a Mishnah that we already have two Shurim in, Mishnah in Avot that starts chapter 6, it's the first Mishnah. We had uh, part two yesterday. I think uh, feedback we got, Baruch Hashem, was very good from uh, last night's shiur. Uh, and these Mishnayot, this uh, last chapter of Avot, uh, they're very, very long. And they're very uh, deep. I mean, you could uh, literally spend uh, the entire shiur on just one word because each word represents a, uh, a lifestyle, a life, uh, a thought process. Uh, so it really all depends on how deep you want to go into things. Uh, but Be'ezat Hashem uh, will uh, try to uh, take uh, the best of what uh, Hashem has given us and uh, apply it to our day-to-day lives because that's the goal, that's the focus. You know, it's a... Uh, last night, we uh, shocked a few people uh, when we talked about the, uh, the deen, the, the, the t- teachings, the law, of uh, being forbidden from teaching a Talmid Lo'agun, a uh, unfair student, it's called, literally. But what it means is that it's a, uh, a person that learns Torah, but not for the sake of fulfilling it. Rather the opposite. There are some people that learn Torah for the sake of fulfilling it, but there are some people that learn Torah for the sake of doing the opposite. Looking for errors, uh, looking for things they can make fun of, looking for things that uh, they could confuse people with. Uh, and unfortunately today, this is very, very common uh, in our world today, that uh, there are many, many people um, that literally spend hours and hours trying to so-called disprove the Torah uh, or disprove the common halacha. Uh, and uh, try to go against the stream, or go against the stream. Anytime you see someone that does such a thing, the first thought you should have, you should feel bad for the person. First person, first, even if the person's very evil, it can be Hitler, doesn't make a difference. First, per, first thing you should, you should do, you should feel bad for them. Why you should feel bad for them? If you ever see someone that's, for example, chas v'shalom, a paraplegic, someone can't walk, can't move their arms, all they have is uh, they can move their head. You know, different uh, degrees. Some people can move their arms, can move certain parts, but can't move their legs. Some of them are even phenomenal athletes. But any time a person that has all of his body parts working sees a paraplegic, and it's his first time ever seeing it, the first thing, if he's a normal person, is he feels bad for him. Feels bad for him. Feel bad for him. Why? Ah, poor guy can't walk. All of a sudden, you start appreciating your legs. Like, yeah, my legs. Wow, I can't believe I just played basketball. You know what? I haven't played. I'm going to go play now. Why? I'm going to use these legs that this guy doesn't have. You start appreciating stuff you have, but at the same time, you feel bad for him. Why? He's a balmum. Balmu meaning he has some type of deficiency, if you will. He could be a genius. He could be uh, much more uh, stronger than you in every other thing that he has. But he's missing something. And you feel like 
he's lacking, even if he doesn't feel bad for himself. It's very difficult to get to such a level where you don't feel bad for yourself when you're missing such a thing. It's, it's not something that uh, comes natural to a person. But anyone that is, in so many words, complete, at least physically, that sees someone that's incomplete, if you will, for lack of a better term, um, they feel bad. feel bad. Now, even more so, you should feel bad for a person that intentionally, actively tries to go against the Torah and against the Chachamim. And the reason why is because they are also a Baal Mum. They're also a Baal Mum. They also have a major deficiency. There's a major part of their brain that's missing. Now you may not be able to prove what I'm saying to you if you put it under some type of uh, CAT scan or MRI but there's definitely something missing from their brain. And the reason why is because it's ludicrous to think that in a religion that has been taught for the last 3,300 years plus where the number one obligation of a Jew is to ask questions. The number one obligation of a Jew is to ask questions because that's how you're going to arrive at the answer. That's why in the beginning of Mishnah Tavot, it says, you're not allowed to be shy. Why are you not allowed to be shy? Because you can never be a Talmud Chacham if you're too shy. Meaning you're supposed to be shy, but to an extent. To an extent. You're supposed to be shy with strangers, when it comes to certain uh, you know, modesty issues, things like that. But when it comes to Torah, there's no shyness in Torah. You have to ask questions. Oh, no, no, I didn't want to disturb you, Kvod Arav. No, no, don't. Don't be overly righteous, buddy. You have a question, answer the question. Ask the question. He didn't get the answer, find somewhere else. Why? You have to get that safik, that doubt that you have eliminated. Or else it grows and becomes Amalek. Now, from the time of Avram Avinu, Parashat Shavua, we learn that Avram Avinu as a child rebuked his father, Terach, after Avram was put in charge of the store, the Walmart of idolatry. His father comes back to the store. He sees all of his goods, all of his products, all of his stock is destroyed. Terah says to Avraham, what happened? What's going on? He's losing, his, he just lost $10 million. What happened? What'd you do? He says, no, no, Abba, you're never going to believe it, Abba. He did it. He goes, who? The biggest statue you have. Look, he's the only one that's still standing. He goes, what? Yeah, yeah, he's the only one that did. He's, he's the only one standing. See, everybody else is broken. He did it. He goes, what are you talking about? Because one of the clients came here. He says, listen, I'm not ready to buy the statue, but I brought it a meal. I brought it an offering. So she gave it some pasta with some, uh, some, some meatballs. So the statue was about to eat it, but then the one right next to her says, hey, hey, share. Sharing is caring. Hey, to give it, what are you doing? 
Give us some. You don't have the whole plate for yourself. You're a small little statue. Little statue says, listen, small or nothing, it's my stuff. She brought it to me. She didn't bring it to you. You're ugly. So the guy said, no, no, give it to me. Give it to me. They start arguing. Next thing you know, the big statue said, hey, guys, you're not eating. You're not eating. No one's eating except me. And the whole... The whole crowd started brawling over the pasta with the meatballs. And as you can see, Abba, the only one that has pasta with meatballs, the big one, everybody else is dead. He killed everybody. Now as ludicrous as this midrash sounds, this is what happened. And Terach says to Abraham Avinu, are you crazy? Is something wrong with you? What's the matter with you? These these statues can't talk. They can't move. They can't beat everybody, each other up. What are you talking about? It's a little tiny, little pizzy, little chick, 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 avinu, katanchik. He says, Abba, your ears should listen to your foolish mouth. You're saying that all of these statues, you have a Walmart of Avodah uh, Zarawi selling these statues because... They're going to make miracles. They're going to bring health to you. They're going to fix your money problems. They're going to get you a zivug. They're going to do this. They're going to do that. That's the whole store. The whole principle of the store. People pay you millions of dollars for what? So you can sell one of these statues that can make miracles. But you're saying not only they can't make miracles, they can't even talk for themselves. They can't even hear what you're saying. They can't even move and even uh, eat the pasta that somebody gave them. They can't do anything. But yet you worshipped them 10 minutes ago. This was a very big financial loss for Terach, but also a bigger loss spiritually. Why? It shook up his entire world. It shook up his entire world because he never actually thought about it. The way the little child, Avram, put it in his perspective. Avram, how did he know this at such a young age? I mean, he didn't have a teacher. He didn't have a yeshiva. When he jumped into the fire of Nimrod, Hashem Yitbarach saved him himself because Hashem says, the Midrash says, he's alone down there and I'm alone up here. Meaning, he's the only one that believes me, believes in me and is willing to sacrifice his life for me in the world. He's the only one. Even though there was a few other tzaddikim in the world, they weren't in the level of Abraham. There was Malkitzedek, the, 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 the son of, uh, uh, already from the time of, of Noah, still around. But he wasn't at the level of Avram. There were other tzaddikim in the world, just not at the level of Avram. So now, thank you. Hashem says, I'm going to save him. But how did Avram, who didn't have a teacher, who didn't have anybody that's going to teach him all this stuff. How did he get to, this, to the real truth? It's not like there was YouTube back then. He can click. He was, he's bored one day. He's looking for some funny video. And he ends up watching uh, Rabbi Yaron Reuven. You know, it's not, there's no YouTube. Your, your YouTube right there is playing with sand. What do you have over there? Play with the camel, feed him maybe. What do you have? How do you arrive at this truth? You arrive at the truth when you start doing something that in Hebrew is called litbonen. Litbonen means to start thinking for yourself deeply. 
and try to figure out the truth by simply going deeper and deeper, asking a question and arriving at an answer and then asking more information, deeper into it. You look at a person's face like, okay, what's in the face though? What's what? How does the face look like that? What's behind it that's keeping the shape? Oh, there's bones. Okay, but a lot of people have bones, but then when they grow old, they, their face is not the same as they used to be. Why? What happened? Oh, because the teeth, the teeth are, you know, sometimes people, they lose their teeth when they get older. So if they don't replace it with something else, their face falls. It's, like, it's not just the bone that holds the face that way, but it's actually also the teeth. The teeth that are holding your face. If you remove somebody's teeth, their entire face looks like it could be 20 years old. After you remove their teeth, they look like they're 95 years old. I've saw it with my own eyes. So, you start, now all of you look surprised, like I just gave you uh, the the, the secret to life. Yeah, yeah, this is what happens. Point is, you start thinking, oh, it's this, it's that. You start realizing there's more than meets the eye to the world. There's more than, yeah, you could tell your uh, doctor, you just found some some secret about uh, his profession. New selling point. New selling point for the dentist. The point is, Rabotai, is that the more you delve into things, the more you delve into things, the more you see that there's more than meets the eye. There's just a lot more information. And the Tbonin, to delve into it, means that you're really searching for the bottom line truth. How do you write? You have to ask questions. But not just ask questions like some of these people, they ask questions, but if they don't get an immediate answer, ah, okay, that means there's no answer. Avraham Avinu asked questions, and he didn't give up until he got answers. Meaning that the father of Judaism, Avraham Avinu, he is the foundation of all questions. And he got to such a high level that he had a book called Sefer Yetzirah, meaning the book of creation. What does it mean? He got to such a high level of knowledge about creation that the way he would violate Shabbat on purpose, because technically he wasn't allowed to keep Shabbat 100%, he was considered technically a Noahide, the Zohar says. But, he, but it says the Avot kept all the mitzvot. So how do you keep all the mitzvot, but at the same time you're not allowed to do it? So the Zohar Kadosh says that Avraham, Yitzchak, and Yaakov, they would violate Shabbat once. How did Avraham Avinu violate Shabbat? He would create a cow. He'd take clay and create a cow. You're not allowed to create Go, go try it outside. Take some clay. Let me know if you succeed. Let me know if you succeed. Take some clay outside. Olga will give it to you for free. She'll give you two. One for you, one for her. Created a cow out of nothing. That's how much of a high level Avraham Avinu got to. Now, he asked questions and he asked questions and his children asked questions and his children's children asked questions. All the way 4,000 years later, we still are asking more and more questions. When a Talmud Chacham looks at a parasha, he's not just looking at it superficially like the Christians to see what the story is. Anyone that thinks that the Torah is full of just stories, it's like a history book, loses his right to live according to the Torah. Now let's look at the Torah as a book of stories. Yes, there are stories in it, but it's not a book of stories. It's not a book of history. 
It's a book of laws. And the entire Sefer Bereshit, the entire book of Genesis, is the laws of Midot. How to become Ben Adam, a decent human being. So Avram Avinu asked questions, his descendant asked questions, and you see when anyone had spent a little bit of time looking into some Gemara, you see that there's, they tell you, okay, you're not allowed to do XYZ, you're allowed to do XYZ, whatever the law is. That's the Mishnah. That's the Mishnah. Mishnah says, let's say there is a uh, an egg. An egg laid on Shabbat. Chicken lays an egg. Chicken doesn't tell you, listen, you keep Shabbat, so I'm not going to lay an egg on Shabbat. I'll do it on Sunday. No, chicken lays an egg whenever it has to lay an egg. Now what happens if a chicken lays an egg on Shabbat? Technically it's food. So you should be able to eat it. No, but it was created on Shabbat. So the Gemara in Masechet Beitzah goes back and forth. Allowed, not allowed. Allowed, not allowed. Why is it allowed? Why is it not allowed? Are you okay? So at the end it said, not allowed to take it. Not allowed to take it. Not allowed to eat it. But can you touch it? No, okay, not going to eat it. Can you touch it? Why? Because it's considered mukze. But can you touch mukse? Or maybe you can't, can't carry it. And it goes back and forth, back and forth. Who, what, when, and how. In the end, you're allowed to touch it, but you're not allowed to move it. You're not allowed to, you're not allowed, you're not allowed to eat it, obviously. But the point is, Rabotai, is that the Gemara doesn't just say what I just said to you in two sentences. It goes over pages and pages and who and why and when and how and this and that. And one guy says yes, but maybe this, but maybe that. In reality, the whole law could have been said to you in one sentence. Chicken lays an egg. Do not touch. Do not uh, do not eat it. Do not uh, carry it. But if you want to touch it for some strange reason, I enjoy it. One sentence. But the Gemara goes, the, almost the entire Gemara talks about it. Every other teaching in the entire Masechet is connected to this original egg that's in the first page. There's countless teachings in the Masechet. But everything is always coming back, oh, but the egg, what about the egg? But the egg, yeah, but Moshe Rabbeinu and Ma'al Sinai, what do you, forget about the egg, just, just, let's just go into something else already, I'm tired of the egg, eat the thing, don't eat the thing, you know what, I don't want to eat it, okay, I don't want to, even if you tell me a lot, I don't want to eat it anymore, you get frustrated with the egg already. No, that's not Torah, Torah is not just giving you the law, Torah is explaining to each and every single person, how we arrive at the law. What's the proof? What is the biblical proof? What verse from the Torah is for sure proving this is the law and nothing else? And what verse from the Torah is disproving? Meaning that you have to look not just at the one that's proving it, but all of the reasons of why it's not the opposite. It's not just to prove the yes. To prove the yes, we could just say, don't do it. Do it. No, no, no. Torah, the Gemara is trying to teach us to prove to you why the no is no. And it tells you countless times we're saying this. It's like, yeah, but this is obvious. What you're telling me here is obvious. No, no, no. We're saying this obvious thing so you never would think that such and such is even possible. Because if this is possible, then something else is possible. And you see, teaching in the Gemara goes deep into the subject of everything. Every halacha is like this. Every halacha is like this. That's why when you learn Gemara, 
It rewires your brain because it teaches you how to think. It's not a matter of arriving at the law. We don't establish halakha by learning Gemara on our own. You want to know what the halakha is? You look at Shulchan Aruch. What, so why, do, why is Gemara the most important thing for a Talmud to learn, for, for, for a Jew to learn? Because it's going to teach him how to think like a Jew. But from here we see that from the time of Avraham Avinu all the way to the time of the Gemara, not only we didn't stop asking questions, we actually increased the amount of questions as the generations got further and further from Mount Sinai, we needed more explanations of how we arrive at the eventual truth. Because emunat mima, meaning complete emunah, without actually checking the facts, unfortunately doesn't last through difficult times. Some people have this thing called blind faith. You want to, they, you know, they, they, oh no, I believe, I believe. Okay, but why do you believe? Did you ever check who, what, when? Do you have any source in the Torah to justify your belief? No, no, I just believe. Okay, now you believe. But if times get difficult, that belief goes in the garbage pail with the rest of the stuff. Why? It doesn't last. That's what happened in the last few generations of parents that uh, took the Torah less seriously, didn't study on a regular, on, on a regular uh, uh, time frame, didn't make... Aitim la Torah, they didn't make specific times to learn Torah, so they would learn it here and there. Their kids learned it here and there. Their grandkids learned there. And eventually we stopped learning. And I said, no, no, listen, my grandfather's a rabbi. I just believe because my grandfather's a rabbi. But as soon as a non-Jewish uh, pretty woman passes by him, all of a sudden he forgot his grandfather. He forgot the grandfather, right? Because it was fake emunah. It was emunah that was not based on real knowledge of who the Creator is. We see from here, Rabotai, that asking questions is very much a deep-rooted task, an obligation for every Jew. You look at the poskim, whether it's from today or from 800 years ago, how they arrive at their law. You look at Avodah's books. You look at any of the other Chachamim's books and they tell you this is the Halakha and they give you all the sources of why this is the Halakha and how they arrived at this truth. They give you all the sources. It's unbelievable how much information they go through just to have the courage to tell you this is the truth. Don't say, oh, no, I, I, I believe this is it. There's no I believe. I believe is Christianity. I believe is idolatry. When you see a sefer of shelot and chuvot of questions and answers from a tamid chacham, get ready to see an enormous amount of sources that explain to you how he arrived at the truth. Because if he doesn't explain it, they will burn his books in the streets. How dare you come to such a big conclusion without having any real sources to back you. Who do you think you are? With that being said, we see that asking questions is very much deep-rooted within our 
history, our life, our DNA, our neshamot. So when a sickly person, mentally sick person, that just got his uh, high school diploma, college diploma, grad school diploma, whatever diploma that he has, and he starts deciding that, no, no, I don't agree with the Rambam here. Oh, no, no, I don't agree with the Ovadia over here. I don't agree with this. I, I think that uh, you, you should be allowed... Uh, I don't think any, there's anything wrong with using electricity on Shabbat. It's not really fire. Even the Poskim said you're not allowed, though. Yeah, but they said it because of this and because of that, and he decides, no, he's going to be different. He's going to be different. That's a Baal Mum. That is a person that you should feel bad for. Immediately you should feel bad for them. Why? There's something wrong with them. What's wrong with them? What's wrong with them is that they have such a mental deficiency that in a religion that has been founded for over 4,000 years to teach us that asking questions is the most important thing for you to do, he thinks he's the first one that asks the question that he's asking. No one asks the question that he's asking. He's been learning Torah for a few years, and he thinks he's the first one that came up with this question. It's the most ludicrous thing in the world to think that your question is the first time it's read. Any question you have, by the way, someone asked it, someone else asked it, a million other people asked it. There's no question that you have that a million other chachamim didn't ask. And not only they asked your question, they asked your question to the multiple of a million, the deeper end of the question. So when someone says, oh no, no, I'm going to go against, I'm going to do something the opposite of what the chachamim say because I arrived at a different truth, there's something wrong with that person because they think that everyone else that came, that, that literally spent decades of their life Delving into Torah, day and night, studying for 20 hours a day, 21 hours a day, something that's inhumane, just inhuman, superpowers, all they did for a hundred years is study Torah. But you, little chupchik, you, you came over here and you, no, no, you, you're smarter than the Gaon Rivina. You're, uh, you're bigger than the Rambam. You're bigger than Rabbi Akiva, he's nothing next to you. You are, your question... Their whole, their whole foundation, their whole beliefs collapsed once you came into the world. It's, the more you learn Torah, the more you realize how ludicrous this is when people go against it. But not go against it where they say, I just don't feel like following. I understand the person that says, I don't feel like following. Why? Because following it obligates him to change his life. What I find ludicrous is when someone says, no, I'm not going to follow because I think they're wrong. I think that all of these chachamim that came before us for the last 4,000 years, they're all wrong, and I'm right. Because I have an iPhone. And my rabbi is Rabbi Google. And they make these videos online telling people, touch their thought, and people follow them. First thing, when you hear such a thing, when you see that there's a common alakha, there's an acceptable opinion, an acceptable law in the Torah, and someone is telling you, no, 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 it's wrong, let me tell you something else, first thing you should do, feel bad for them. Why? They're the same, they're a worse deficiency than someone that's a paraplegic. 
someone that's incapacitated, mentally incapacitated, someone that's missing half their brain, they might as well miss the, all their entire brain. Might as well. It's, a, it's, it's the same thing. It's the same thing. You should feel bad for them because there's something really, really wrong with them. Because they haven't thought enough about their own question to think of the magnitude of what it means. When you make a sin in the Torah, it's not, oh, you know what, I uh, went through a uh, stop sign, but no one was there, no big deal. When you violate a, uh, when you violate the Torah, it could literally mean eternal punishment. It could literally mean an enormous amount of punishment in this world. It can mean a lot of horrible things. It's not no big deal. So they just think, no, I'm going to go against the Rambam. I'm going to go against the Shuchan Aruch. I'm going to go against the Gaumi Vilna. I'm going to go against Rabbi Vadya. I'm going to go against the Stipler. I'm going to go against all these giants that spent decades of their life only learning Torah, never spent a moment in the real world like we do. But you're going to go against them. This is insanity. That's a Balmum. The second thing is, is that you should look at these people and ask the question that's the most important. What's the question? What's their motive? Why are they doing what they're doing? Why? Because people do not operate without a motive. The motive could be good, the motive could be bad. There's only two options. There isn't a third option of no motive. Nothing in the world is done for no reason. No one is ever going to build a house just because he wants to build it, but no one's ever going to live in it. No, yeah, I just like building, so I figured I'd build a four-story house. What do you think? I think we should put you in a mental institution, maybe. No one ever does such a thing. The reality is, if you're going to say something that's against thousands of years of proofs, you have to have a motive. Unfortunately, a lot, a lot of times the motives that for what people do is not is worse than the answer they have. Money motivates them. Popularity motivates them. Getting attention. Some people just fiend for attention, like children. They need to constantly get recognized by people. Oh, so you see me? You see me? You see me? You see? See what do you think? You see me? You see what I put on the internet? Did you see my comment on Facebook? Did you? What do you mean? Did you, do you think I, I just sit all day? Wait, oh wait. When did Joe make comments? Oh, yes. Joe made a comment. Let me see what he says. People send me these things. Oh, did you see my comment? No. Wait, you have nothing to do? You think the rest of the world has nothing to do just to wait for your comment? Did you see what I posted on my page? No, I didn't see. If I happen to see it, if I didn't, if you're making it for me to see it, you have a serious problem. If you're writing anything for people to see it, you have a serious problem. Why? It's the wrong motive. It's the wrong motive. If you're writing stuff on the internet because you want people to see it so you get credit for it, you have a serious problem. It's the wrong motive. This Mishnah in Avo tells us, Kol ha'osek batorah l'shma zochel edvarim arbe. Torah tells us here, Rabbi Meir Balanes tells us here, someone that's dealing with Torah, 
if he wants the reward, the ultimate reward in this world, the next world, the best of the best, first rule, you learn it for the sake of learning it. You teach it for the sake of teaching it. Not because you're popular, you're not popular, you feel like doing it, you don't feel like doing it, it's convenient, it's inconvenient. All of those things have to literally be deleted from your brain, which I can tell you from experience is the most difficult part. Why? Naturally, we all have a motivation to do things. Torah tells you, you want to get the reward? You want to get that big reward that Hashem promised? Do it just because. Do it just because. You see that a lot of the people that actively, all of them, that actively go against the Torah, their motive always leads to money. Always leads to kavod. Because they figure that if they say something different than the norm, that's going to shock some people. Yeah, one of you can sit over here and uh, you sit in the chair. No, no, you don't have to choose the chairs. Just one check over here. People make comments just to like uh, one of these radio jocks that say things just to get your attention. They say silly things, crazy things, just to get people... To say, do you hear what he said? Do you hear what she did? Do you hear this? Do you hear that? Now, when it comes from Hollywood, it comes from the secular world that's full of Tum'ah, it's no surprise. What else do they have running for them? But when it comes from somebody that's supposedly a Jew, that supposedly is a Ben Torah, that supposedly is a rabbi, that supposedly is supposed to be a kosher person, and you see stuff like this coming from there, something pro- it's a serious problem. It's a serious problem. But you're seeing it more and more now in a generation of Mashiach, the generation where the Erev Rav is running circles around us. Every other day you see this crazy comment made by some rabbi that's supposed to be until now decent. You're seeing people just falling off, just falling off. And it's scary. The first thing first is ask yourself, what's the motivation? What is the consequence of this comment? What's the consequence of this change? I saw a certain person made a video saying he believes that, or made a comment uh, saying he believes that you're allowed to use electricity on, uh, on Shabbat. He also made a video about it. I never wasted my time watching it. But he says, but I thought about using electricity on Shabbat, but I'm too concerned about what the community will say. Meaning he's not concerned about what Hashem will say. He's not concerned about what the Rambam will say, what Moshe Rabbeinu will say, what the Stipe Lagaon will say, what all, all the Chachamim before us for the last 3,000 years, doesn't care. But what uh, the, local, uh, the local Chabadnik, what he says, him and his wife, he cares. What the, uh, the guy from Meisha Torah, he, for he says, oh, that's what he cares. 
The guy from BRS, he, he cares about him. All the people from the community that he sees at the supermarket what, twice a week, he cares about what they say. So that's why he doesn't, doesn't use electricity on Shabbat. But what Hashem says and everybody else, ah, it's not, they're all wrong. This Rabotai is happening more and more often. And a person has to be very careful with who he listens to today. You can't just listen to rabbis randomly. You can't just listen to anybody with a kippah. You can't just take everything at face value. You have to double check things. You have to double check the sources. You have to double check what do the real big chachamim say. Do they agree? Do they disagree? You have to double check with your rabbi. You have to make sure your rabbi himself is kosher. But the point being, Abotai, is at the end of it all, you have to check what's the motivation. Because if the motivation is not Lishma, already there's a bias. Now, by saying Lishma, it doesn't mean that everything has to be for free, that people that people that teach Torah have to be homeless on the streets, beggars. No, that's not what we mean. Lishma means that money is not their priority. They're not going to do anything because of money. They called me, asking me if I want to start a uh, a beddin, and what's the financials behind it, and so on. Because we deal with conversions a lot, and I said, uh, if you're going to start a beddin for the sake of money, don't start it. If you're going to start it for betting for the sake of money, don't start it. Why? Because you're guaranteed to go to Genom. Why? <laughs> the Gemara Masechet Shabbat says, any generation that you see there's problems in a generation, Masechet Shabbat, Daf 139. Any generation you see that there's problems in a generation, go look at the Dayanim. They're not righteous. There's something wrong with their judgment. There's something wrong there. Now you start a Bedin, if you're looking to make money, that means you're not going to look at what's the law. Oh, you want to convert? Why? Because your boyfriend is Jewish. Oh, you want to convert? No problem. 20000 no problem. Oh, he, he has a Ferrari? 40000 40000 We'll convert you today. We'll convert you today. Meaning you start converting people because of money. You don't care if she's going to keep something, don't keep. She's wearing a miniskirt to the interview, she's not. You don't even care if they keep anything. Why? You're going to make money. It's a business. Guaranteed to go to Gainom. But that Gainom is only eventual. The illusion is that you're going to make a lot of money. So, being part of a Bedin, it all depends. Being part of people's lives where you're going to influence them, whether to convert, to do tshuva, to serve Hashem the right, right way, it's not so simple. Why? You have to constantly check yourself. What's my motivation? What's my motivation? So, Rabbi Meir Balanes tells us, Kol ha'osek batorah l'shma zochele dvarim arbe. He, if he wants the reward, the ultimate reward, first and foremost, he has to do it for the sake of Hashem Barach. He has to do it for the sake of doing it. Whether he ends up making being blessed and making money out of it, whether he ends up getting being blessed and writing books because of it, 
being recognized because of it, all of that, that should never be a reason. Should never be a reason. The rest of the Mishnah continues where it says that such a person that learns the Shema, the whole world was worth it to create just for that person. The Tiferet Yisrael clarifies that if a person learns Torah, Lishma, then they have full permission from the Torah to enjoy the world. What does it mean? The Holy Yisrael, Rabbi Yisrael Misalant, quotes the Rashish Chokmah and several other places in the Gemara as well. It says that a person will have to give a judgment, give a, a reason for every single thing he enjoyed in the world. And everything he enjoyed in the world, he's either going to get punished for enjoying it, or he's going to get rewarded. He ate a sandwich. Why did you eat the sandwich? Why did you eat the sandwich? Oh, I, I ate it so I have uh, strength to, to, to learn Torah. Oh, mitzvah. You eating the sandwich, mitzvah. So mitzvah to eat the sandwich. Like you learned Torah, you ate the sandwich. I ate the sandwich because I needed strength to go uh, make a living, go make money. Okay. Follow-up question. Follow-up question. What kind of living do you make? Oh, I uh, drive an Uber. Oh, okay. You drive an Uber, you make X amount of money every week. No problem. Follow-up question. Follow-up question. When you get the money from Uber, when you get the money from the... Eventually, after you pay your bills, what do you do with the money? You pay the bills. Yeah, you pay. You, you, you live in a house. You don't live in some shack. You don't live in your car. You live in a house. You, have, you pay rent. You pay mortgage. You have kids. You have food. You have the, but there's some other stuff. There's some other... It's not expenses. What, what do you do? Give ma'asel? Do you do mitzvot with it? Is there anything you do with the money? Oh, yeah, I go to the game with my kids. Oh, you go to the game with the kids. Okay, so you eating a sandwich? It's not a mitzvah. In fact, if you use the money for bad things, it's an avera. The Gemaraim Masechet Psachim says that a person that does not learn Torah is forbidden from eating meat. Obviously, practically speaking, no, people don't follow this. But the Gemara says he should not be allowed to eat meat. Why? The cow is better than him. You shouldn't eat her. If he's not learning Torah, that means he doesn't know why he's better than the cow. What makes you better than a cow? Why? Because you could talk. Cow talks also. It has less of a vocabulary. It says moo. You ever see a cow stressed out? No. It lives a happier life than you. It doesn't have a mortgage. It's not worried about uh, finding a zivug. It's not worried about uh, any uh, the stock market. Oh, it does all day. Relax, enjoy, eats a little bit of uh, cow food, some hay. It's relaxing. You should try being a cow for a week. I'm telling you, you like it. But the reality is, a person that eats the cow, a kosher cow, is saying what? I have the right to murder the cow. I have a right to kill the cow and eat her. Why? Because she was created for me. Who, what, what, what proof do you have? Oh, the Torah. Torah says that the cow was created for you. All of creation was created for you. So if you're saying that you're eating the cow because it was created for you, that means you have to also see what else this Torah says. But if you don't learn to the Torah, then how are you going to know? 
If you don't learn the Torah, then you're not following the rest of it. So the Tiferet Yisrael says that a person that learns Lishma gets full permission to enjoy all of the amenities of this world. Why? Because now everything that he does, everything that she does, is part of our holy mission. It's part of our serving Hashem. It's part of Him serving Hashem. Computer? Yes, I have a computer because I want to publicize Torah. Phone? I want to have a phone so I can send people messages and get them to come to Shiul Torah. Car? I want to have a nice car because people see a junk car. They say, oh, this person's homeless. Why should I listen to him? No, man. People are superficial like that. That's the way people are. That's the way people are. If I came to you guys with a uh, bicycle to shoot Torah, like, oh, yeah, listen, Kvodarav, um, can you send us an email instead of coming here every week? Like, we don't want some homeless guy riding a bicycle teaching us Torah. You guys are going to start getting some change together. Maybe get me a car or something. But you come with a normal car. He says, oh, okay, so he has a car. He's a normal person. He's a normal person. It's not like the generations of, of people saw... The, the, the houses of, uh, of Rav Steinemann. It's on the internet. You can see the house of Rav Steinemann. You can see the house of the Chafetz Chaim. You see the houses of all these Gileadol. They were much. Many of them were much. They lived in like shacks. And in, in those days, they honored people like that. Why? Because they saw things beyond the superficial world that we live in today. But if today somebody lived in a shack and told you, yeah, yeah, come to my shield, like, listen, uh, what are you going to ask us for tzedakah? What can a homeless guy teach us? So you want to have a nice car. Why? So people respect it. You want to have a nice clothes? Because people respect it. Rabbi Udanasi, Rabbi Akadosh, says it's an obligation. Obligation. Not nice thing. It's an obligation for a person to wear clothes that represent his stature, where he is in life. Meaning, if he's rich... He's not allowed, he's forbidden, it's a sin from the Torah for him to dress like a bum. And I don't mean like a bum, like he's literally like a bum. A bum meaning like he's dressing like everybody else. If he's rich, he has to dress like a rich person. He has to look respectable. You can't be the king's son and look like some average Joe that just came back from the gym with your sweatpants and sweatshirt. You're not allowed. You have to look the part. If Hashem blessed you with money, you have to look the part. You have to look like you have money. Today, a lot of these Hollywood personalities and a lot of these rich people, you can't tell if they're homeless or they're rich. Literally, you look, you look at people like, oh yeah, poor guy, let me get some, hold on a second, let me get you some change, buddy. Let me get you some change. You find out, no, what change? The guy owns the building. He owns the building? Wow, I thought I'd have to give him some change. They look like bums today. Mamash, people walk around the street, you can't tell who's the bum, who's not. Tiferet Yisrael says that if you're learning Torah Lishma, you're fulfilling a Torah, you're learning it for the sake of learning it, you have full permission to enjoy the beauty of the world. If Hashem gives you money, enjoy. Hashem gave you a beautiful uh, wife, enjoy. But enjoying a kosher way.
Don't enjoy by sharing it with the world. Oh yeah, look at my wife, she's so beautiful. Let's put her on TV. Any normal Jew that has a little bit of Yirat Shamaim and respect for his wife will do everything possible to refrain from having any pictures of her on the internet. Because any normal any normal man, forget just Jew, any normal man would never want some other guy thinking about his wife. Today there's such sick people in the world, all they do is they look for people's wives. That's all they want. They want people's wives. They don't want someone that's single. So sometimes you see people that supposedly are rabbis, but their profile picture on Facebook or YouTube or something else is them hugging their wife. And they think it's like a mitzvah to show like they're regular people that they're hugging their wife like everybody else. Shuchan Aruch says, you're not allowed to show chiba. You're not allowed to show affection to your wife in public. You're not even allowed to touch her hand in public. Like holding hands, like romantic. You're not allowed. Shuchan Aruch. It's not Yeron Uben. But you see these rabbis, they're hugging their wives in the picture. Sometimes they're hugging other women. Like this Goldberg, Rasha from Boca Raton. Every other event they have, he's hugging the crowd. He's hugging women from the Kilah. APAC, Shmeipak, Jewish Federation, all these events he's part of. You see, you'd see him taking pictures with women. But not just, oh, he's here and she's there. No, no, Mamas, they're hugging. You know what to do with your own wife? You're doing with other women. ish. So people look, oh, he's a rabbi, he's a dayan. So of course it must be allowed. So it's a chotel machti. It's a sinner who makes other people sin. By why? By taking a picture. How could such a person that knows, supposedly knows, so much Torah make such a foolish sin? Because they learn Torah. La lishma. La lishma. They learn Torah in order to make money. They learn Torah in order to show that they know. They learn Torah for an ulterior motive. No one is saying that you're not allowed to enjoy the beauty of the world. All we're saying is that you have to enjoy it in a kosher way. Because Kola Olam Kulo Kedaihulo. The entire world was worth it to create it for such a person. The Chachamim also say that this is one of the places that's a source piggybacking off of the Pasuk from Jeremiah, That if not for my covenant day and night, the laws of the world, the laws of nature will cease to exist, Hashem says. If not for the people that are learning Lishma, if not for the people that are learning Torah just for the sake of learning it, 24 hours a day, I would simply destroy the world instantly without a warning. Worse than Noah's time. Because at least Noah had a warning for 120 years. Here Hashem is saying to Jeremiah that if there's a minute in the world, a minute, where someone's not learning Torah, I destroy the world. Everything will cease to exist immediately. So this Mishnah says, a person that learns Lashma, the whole world exists because of him, not just for him, but because of him.
the Netziv of Olozin, Rav Naftali Tzvi Yehuda from Berlin, about 150 years ago, he was the head of the famous Yeshiva of Elozin. He had two very successful sons. One of them was Rabbi Chaimi Berlin, very well known in his own uh, accomplishments, was the uh, chief rabbi of Moscow. His uh, other son, Rabbi Meir, actually was the uh, one of the uh, founders of religious Zionism. Religious Zionism. But religious religious Zionism, not the shtuyot that we have today a lot of times where people say they're religious but and they're Zionists at the same time, but they forget about the religion. So, the Netziv of Olozin, Rabbi Naftali Tzvi of Berlin, he was Kodesh Kodeshim and was scared that this, of this Pasuk. Was scared to death of this Pasuk. He was scared maybe for a second. We're the only ones in the world studying Torah. So he would make it where at the end of a fast of Yom Kippur, you finish the fast, what does everybody do? Everybody runs, goes to eat. He would stay in a bit Knesset after a long fast and he would start studying Torah as if he's a uh, normal day. He continues studying Torah, studying Torah, no eating. No like somebody's bringing him a little uh, sandwich on the side, maybe have a bite, a little Dvar Torah, a little bite. No, no, no. Not breaking the fast. He's continuing, continuing, learning Torah, learning, learning, learning. So the students who come back after they finish eating Normal, they come back, they come back to learn. They don't go in to play video games. They come back to learn Torah. They come to the Bet Midrash, they see the Rebbe, he's like, oh, wow, Rebbe, you uh, got here real quick. No, no, I, I didn't leave. What do you mean? You have to eat. The Yom Kippur is over. No, I have to study Torah. I have to study Torah. Yeah, I have to study. Everybody has to study Torah. But you also have to eat. He says, Chas Shalom. If we were the last ones learning Torah in the world, everybody went to eat. So what if we're the only ones in the world that are going to study Torah? Now we're not studying Torah because we went to eat. Because normal, we're human beings, we have to eat. But what if that's one to one second? So I have to study Torah until you guys came back so you can study Torah and I can go eat. Why? Because if for one second, for one second, no one's studying Torah, the world, there's no second chances. It's not like, hey, I got a text message. Hashem says he's really upset. Nobody's studying Torah. <laughs> no, there's no second chance. And that's why, Rabotai, there's been many yeshivot throughout the generations, and even until today, there are some. Some say there are some today. But there are many yeshivot throughout history where they literally had shifts. Shifts of Talmidim learning Torah 24 hours a day, seven days a week without a break. First shift, just like you have in, uh, in a company. First shift, all right, we're, uh, I don't know, let's say from 6 a.m. to 6 p.m. 
12 hour shift. They finish, they go home, but they don't go home until the second shift comes at 6 p.m. Once they come, everybody's situated, they're already learning, one after another, they leave, the other ones stay from 6 p.m. all the way to 6 a.m. And they literally would have shifts of people, shifts of Talmidei Chachamim, because Chas Shalom were the only yeshiva left in the world of people learning Torah. For such people, Hashem Barach says the Pasuk, I love those who love me. In the book of Proverbs, chapter 8, verse 17, Shlomo Melech says, Hashem said, I love those who love me. What does it mean, I love those who love me? Someone that's constantly thinking about all the things that I said and takes them seriously, that's a person that loves me. That's a Avram Avinu. That's a Yitzchak Avinu. That's a Yaakov. That's a such somebody that's special. Because he's constantly taking what I said into consideration. For him it was worth it to create the world. To create the world. As the Mishnah continues, he says, Oev et makom, Oev et abriot. Someone that learns Lishma, not only does he show his love of the omnipresent, but he also loves the omnipresent creatures. As a result of learning Torah, not only are you showing love to Hashem, which is called the omnipresent or the makom, because he's in every makom, he's everywhere. There's no place that Hashem is not. But he also loves, as a result of learning his Torah, he also ends up loving his, his creations. As a child, the Admol Mikotsk was a very, very inquisitive person, delved into everything, and was very sharp. So some kofel wanted to bust his chops a little bit. He says, uh, show me where Hashem is. And I'll give you candy. So the little Admol, he says, show me where Hashem isn't, and I'll give you two candies. Meaning the Hashem is called the omnipresent, the makom, because he's everywhere. Everywhere. If a person truly understood this, and truly put this into their head at all times, they'd never, be, they'd never make a sin. The times we sin, the times we fall, is simply because we forget that Hashem is right here next to us. Shiviti Hashem lenegdi tamid. There's a pasuk in practically almost every parochet, every Arona Kodesh in the Bet Knesset has the same pasuk. Shiviti Hashem lenegdi tamid. That I'm always considering that Hashem is next to me at all times. In reality, if we really did, we'd never talk in shul. We'd never curse. We never yell at our wife. We never disrespect our husband. We never get impatient. We never have any uh, lack of emunah. We, why? Because Hashem is right next to you. Meaning, we should start listening to the teachings. We should start listening to what we're reading. Not just put it on uh, closets.
Another reason why Hashem is called the Makom is because Hashem is not separated from anything. The Zohar Kadosh explains how that literally everything is Hashem. Everything in the world is a part of Hashem. There's nothing separate from Hashem. That's why He's called Amakom, He's called the place and not that you go to a place. He's not, it's not separate from him. The other thing that the learning Torah will, with a healthy mind that is doing it for the right reason, is going to lead a person to love the creatures, love the creations of Hashem. Sometimes this is one of the most difficult mitzvot there is. Sometimes. Why? Because people are very difficult. The creation is very difficult. When the Egyptians were drowning, the angels wanted to dance and sing with Am Yisrael. Hashem rebuked the angels. And He told them, My creation is drowning and you're singing. So the angels had a uh, they, they had they had an excuse. What's the excuse? The like, yeah, Amisad is doing it. They made a whole shir every day. We say it in prayer. They sing it every day. They're allowed to sing. Why? They actually suffered from them. You didn't suffer from them. Then my kid, forgive them for celebrating at the demise of somebody else, even though that somebody else is also my creation. You don't have an excuse. Meaning that a person that learns Torah deeply literally starts valuing every creation there is, even the things that he doesn't like. That's why Moshe Rabbeinu did not hit the sea himself, the river himself, with the staff and turn it into blood. Did not touch the sand and turn it into lice. He didn't do it. Aaron did it. Why? He says, I owe the, I owe the river, I owe it to Akarat because it didn't drown me. When my mom put me in a little teva, in a little basket, the sea could have just swallowed me up and killed me. It didn't. So I owe it Akarat I owe it some benefit of the day. I owe it some good. Some thank you. Some gratitude. The last thing I want to do is uh, return back to the sea and uh, turn it into blood. Smelly blood. Same thing with the sand. Same thing with the, the sand that hit the Egyptian that I killed. It helped me out. Bought me some more time. So I'm going to turn it all into lice. So Moshe Rabbeinu didn't actually do many of the makot himself. Why? Because he owed gratitude to things that were not even living. When a person learns Torah Lishma, learns Torah for, for the sake of Torah, he starts enjoying the creation itself. He starts seeing the beauty of Hashem in everything. And you start, when a person starts appreciating the creation, he starts seeing how the creation was literally created for him. Now, I'm nobody special, but this happened yesterday. It's a good story to tell. We, Sonny and I arrived at the shiur last night 
early. And uh, the uh, Knesset changed the code. I didn't know the code. I didn't know the code. And uh, we were there waiting. Hopefully somebody knows the code. Somebody from the Knesset was the code. But as you would have it, as soon as we arrived, got out of the car, somebody came, somebody came, opened the door, and left. I told him, hey, what's the code? And he told me the code. Like, he didn't stay. He left. He came in literally five seconds and then left for no reason. Why? Hashem sent him. Because if you didn't know the code, the shear is delayed. Who knows how much is delayed? There's less Torah in the world. Hashem changed creation. He just sent this guy from wherever he was to the place literally for five seconds. Not like he went there, he got his jacket that he forgot and he came out. No, no. He literally came, he opened, and he left in, within one rotate, one second. You see how Hashem, Mamash, changes nature for you. You just have to pay attention. The Torah says next that a person that learns Lishma Mesameach et HaMakum, Mesameach et HaBriot, a person that learns such a Torah makes Hashem happy. He gladdens the omnipresent. He gladdens his creatures as well. What does it mean that he loves Hashem that we already went over yesterday? When you love Hashem, that means that you're doing it just for the sake of doing it. But here it's saying it's not just loving Hashem. Here it's actually making Hashem happy. Mesameach et hamakom. Mesameach et hamakom. If it wasn't written, we wouldn't be allowed to say it. Why? What do you mean you're making Hashem happy? Well, Hashem has feelings. So Rashi says that a person that learns Lishma, a person that learns for the sake of learning, has special siyat dishmai, has special assistance from heaven, which as a result of his learning will bring other people closer to Torah. Either actively by going out there and teaching people, or because they're a role model, people see, Psh, look at this guy, what a tzaddik. You saw how he gave that woman the change back even though she made a mistake? You saw how nice he was to the guy that was yelling at him uh, for no reason, he was calm and collected? They see the guy, it's a tzaddik, he's like, wow, who is this guy? Oh yeah, he, he learns Torah, he's this, he's this, he's that. Oh wow, this Torah. They see the guy's behavior and says, Wow, Ishtabach Shimo. And the opposite in Chas Shalom, they see a guy with a keeper acting like a, uh, like a bull in the middle of Mexico running after the people. And it's Chilul Hashem. Why? They say, Look at this guy. This Torah that he's learning is it's a waste. That's what Torah teaches him to act like that. It's Chilul Hashem. Point is, is that it says that when a person learns the Shema, he ends up. Actively or actively uh, bringing people closer to the Torah, or because he's serving as a role model.
But the mystical Kabbalistic books explain to us also that when a person learns such a Torah, he could literally be saving an entire city that's not even related to him. Meaning, you make a mitzvah here, that could be saving some Jew's life in Israel. You learn here two hours, that could save an entire family from uh, some ason, chas v'shalom, that's supposed to happen. Because this mitzvah has power, it creates a credit in the world. And when Hashem, chas v'shalom, has a decree in the world to punish somebody, He doesn't just punish them because of them. He has to see everyone that will be affected by them. And if he sees that somebody within their circle that will be affected by it doesn't deserve it, you could literally be saving their life without even knowing it. Meaning, let's say this one person's a Mechalil Shabbat. He drives on Shabbat, he's dishonest, he's this, he's that. Hashem Yechem, he deserves to get punished. The Malach Hamavet shows up to Shemaim says, Hashem, that's it, this guy has his account. Everyone has an account in Shemaim. The Goim and the Jews all have an account. One side of the account is the mitzvot, they get filled up. One side of the account is the avirot, they get filled up. When the site of the Averot, when the site of the sins gets filled up to the max, the Malach HaMavet doesn't have to argue. He just shows, Hashem, time to pay the bill. Time to pay the bill. He filled it up. So that's why you see that, unfortunately, the places in the world today that have a lot of Abu Dazara, they're getting a lot of natural disasters. Tsunamis, tornadoes, earthquakes, strange things are happening around the world, bombings, terrorism, all types of things are happening in places that have a lot of idolatry, a lot of hatred of Hashem, hatred of Am Yisrael. It's not because they just did something once, it's because they filled up their account of sins over an extended period of time, and it was time for Hashem to punish them. Sometimes, unfortunately, that somebody is a Jew. And that somebody filled up their account full of sins. And the Malach HaMavet showed up to Hashem. He goes, Hashem, it's time for, to pay the bill. So now Hashem has to evaluate who is going to be affected by this. Oh, his mom? Oh, yeah, she's also a sinner. She deserves it. Oh, his dad? Oh, he's worse than him. He deserves it. His brother? Amalek. His sister? Izevin. Uh, this, that, do, do, do. He goes to the accounting and he sees this guy, unfortunately, he's a, he's a product of his uh, environment. Everybody's just like him or worse. He's, he's, the, uh, he's the Moshe Rabbeinu of the crowd, even though he's a Rasha. But still, he made a lot of sins. But then they see, Shem sees endlessly. He says, oh, wait a minute. Yes, some, uh, some, uh, hold on a second, hold on a second, hold on, hold on, before Malach before you go chop his head off, hold on a second, look, he knows this tzaddik. Malach says, yeah, why well, he knows him? He hasn't seen him in 25 years. He hasn't seen him in 25 years. What knows? He say he knows him. 25 years ago he knew him. He doesn't know him now. He goes, yeah, but look, this is what Hashem shows him. Look what's going to happen. 
he's gonna something's gonna happen to him. Someone's gonna tell someone. Someone's gonna tell someone. So he publicized it in the news. Next thing you know, this tzaddik is gonna hear about it. Oh, your friend from twenty five years ago just died in some crazy car crash, and a tzaddik is gonna feel bad, and he's not gonna learn Torah for the day, and he's gonna really feel oh, why well, maybe I should have spent more time. Maybe this, maybe that. He starts going to start doubting himself. He's going to go through mourning because he's a tzaddik. And he's going to blame himself. Maybe I didn't do enough. Shem says, he doesn't deserve it. Why? He's a tzaddik. So for this tzaddik that you haven't spoken to in 25 years could literally be saving your life. The point is, Rabotai, is that when a person learns Torah the Shema, he's bringing other people to closer to Torah, sometimes actively by teaching, sometimes actively by inviting them and showing them how beautiful the Torah is to their house, to, to their uh, shiurim and so on. Spreading Torah, sharing Torah, giving CDs out, sponsoring, whatever you could do, kiruv actively. And today, Baruch Hashem, it's free to do kiruv. It's very easy to do kiruv. One of the worst things that a person can do to themselves is not do kiruv. Because if they, anyone that wants the slightest chance of showing up to Shemaim clean of sins has to do kiruv. How do we know? It says in the Torah, the prophet Ezekiel says it to Am Yisrael, chapter 18. Hashem says to the prophet, Echaf. Echafotz echafotz motrasha neum Hashem. He says, "Do I really desire? Do I desire the death of the wicked man? The word of Hashem, meaning Hashem is saying, what do you think? I, I want all the to kill all these rishayim. You think that's why I brought them to the waters to kill them? If I wanted to kill them, I wouldn't create them. If I wanted to punish them, I wouldn't create them." Rather, I prefer him to return from his ways, meaning to do tshuva, so he may live. I don't want to punish him. I want him to do tshuva. If I wanted to punish him, as soon as somebody makes a sin on the spot, Hashem kills him. But then that defeats the purpose of creation. Hashem says, I want to do tshuva. And when a righteous man turns away from his righteousness and practices corruption, shall he do like all the abominations that the wicked man did and live? All his righteousness that he had done will not be remembered because of his treachery with which he betrayed and because of his sin that he sinned. Because of them he shall die. Meaning if somebody started doing tshuva, Or he's from from birth, but then he decided, you know what, Yetzirah is too big, I really want to go out with this girl, this German Goya sounds good to me, I want to go out with her. This uh, stealing money from uh, this guy sounds good to me, I'm going to do it. He wants to make some type of sin. And he makes the sin as if it's allowed. He says because he's going to start doing what the Rasha did, what the Rasha is doing, but he's, because he's thinking, yeah, but I have enough credit on my account. I have enough credit. I did enough mitzvot. I went to yeshiva. I have this guy that I know. 
Every time I see him, he goes, you know, I went to yeshiva. I went to yeshiva. I went to yeshiva. You know, I, know, I went to yeshiva. I, always want, I don't say anything, but it's funny to me. Why? It was almost 35 years ago. Like, it's 30... Buddy, you went to yeshiva, you were a teenager. You're 58 years old. Yeah, it's not like you continued the yeshiva, became some rav, built the yeshiva, became the like. Okay, you went to yeshiva as a kid. What do you want me to? What do you want me to for you every time I see you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. What do you want? People sometimes think because of some mitzvah they did in 1942 that uh, they should be uh, allowed to be Hitler himself uh, 25 years later because they did some mitzvah, or because their grandfather's a rabbi, or because of something else. So this particular part is talking about, well, you think the guy that uh, used to be righteous starts going off the derech and thinking, oh, no, no, I'm going to act like the rasha, but I have enough credit on my balance. Hashem says him, he's going to die too. He's going to get an extra punishment. Why is it treachery? He went against it knowing it's worse. And if you should say, the way of my Lord is not proper. Meaning, no, this doesn't make any sense. You're, you, you're teaching uh, scary Torah. Hashem only loves. Hashem only loves, people tell me. At least five people a day send me something. Says, no, no, I think uh, you're scary. I think you shouldn't teach that way. Some 15-year-old sent me something today. Cute kid. I mean, it's hard for me to, uh, to rebuke him because he's, mamash, I feel bad. But it's a uh, it's a fifteen-year-old. Uh, he's just discovering that he's actually a male instead of a female, and uh, he's like, "Yeah, I think uh, you should change your uh, kiruv strategy." He wants to teach me how to do kiruv. He just learned that he's a male, but he but he but he wants to wants to teach me something. It's funny to me. So it's hard to rebuke such a person. So you have to be careful with them because if you're too hard, you could break them. If you're too soft, they continue on their way and become Amalek himself. So you have to decide, you have to be smart, Bisiat Dishmaya, all with the help of Hashem. When and how and who and when, all this to, you know, how to talk to people. But every day somebody wants to rebuke the rebuker. Why well, I want to tell you, no, no, you shouldn't tell people about punishment. But Torah talks about punishment. Yeah, Torah, let them read it on their own. But they're not going to read it on their own. Their diet Torah is watching my shoe. They're not going to learn anything else. If they don't learn from me, they're not going to learn from anybody else. Why? Because all the other rabbis don't talk about it. Or they don't learn from any other rabbi. Whatever the case may be. So if they don't learn it here, right now, they're not going to learn it. So how are they going to know this punishment? Oh, they'll figure it out on their own. How? How are they going to figure it out? How are they going to figure it out on their own? Torah says, we're obligated to teach this. Somebody says, yeah, but what, you really think Hashem is going to punish everyone? Here you go as a source. Chapter 18 of Ezekiel, verse 25. <speaking in Hebrew> He says, if you should say the way of Hashem is not proper, hear now, O house of Israel, 
Is my way not proper? Surely it's your ways that are not proper. When a righteous man turns away from his righteousness and practices corruption, he shall die from them. For the corruption that he practices, he shall die. And if the wicked man turns away from his wickedness, and he performs justice and righteousness, he shall cause his soul to live. He says, literally, you don't have to be a big chacham to understand. Just because your father's a rabbi, your grandfather's a rabbi, you went to yeshiva 25 years ago, you did tshuva 20 years ago, you made some mitzvot in the past, but now you're not doing it, don't take that to the bank. Don't think that that's going to carry any weight. Why? As long as you're alive, you have to stay at tzaddik. As long as you're alive, you have to continue growing spiritually. You have to continue learning more and more Torah. Why? Because if you don't, you get punished for it. The past is not going to be used to your credit. The opposite, he says. On the other hand, you say, wait, hold on a second. So what, you're telling me that the righteous guy is going to go to Gainom and the, and, the, and the wicked guy is going to go to Gan Eden? How does that work? He goes, no, no. How the righteous goes to Gainom and the wicked goes to Gan Eden? It's that the guy that used to be righteous is going to Gainom because now he's wicked. So he's not right. He used to be righteous. And the wicked guy, he's not wicked, he's going to Gan Eden. He used to be wicked, but he's a Chuba. Now, now he's Tzadik. Your way is not wrong. You thinking that, not learning about fear of Hashem, not learning about punishment, you think that's the wrong way. Your way is wrong. Why? Because without learning about punishment, you're never going to be scared of punishment. You're going to think Hashem is just like you. And that's why it says in verse 30, do tshuva and bring others with you, meaning get other people to do tshuva, so all of your transgressions from the past do not stand there as an obstacle for you. What does it mean? I made tshuva. What do you mean that the, 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 that the sin is going to be an obstacle? Even though a person did tshuva and he stopped sinning, the sin still happened. The sin still happened. If somebody killed somebody, they could say I'm sorry until they're blue in the face. It's not going to change the outcome. The guy still died. You still murdered somebody. There's still something happened as a result of your actions. The reality is a person needs to know is that there are certain sins then you can fix them by simply saying I'm sorry, not doing it again, regretting it. But there are certain sins you can't fix. Why? No matter how long you keep Shabbat, if you didn't keep Shabbat your whole life, you're still going to show up to Shemaim with a deficiency, with a deficit of Shabbat, meaning if you started keeping Shabbat at 30 years old and you kept Shabbat for 90 years, until 120 you lived 120 years like Moshe Rabbeinu you kept Shabbat 90 years 
Yishobes Shemayim expecting to go to Gan Eden and say, "Oh, I'm sorry, uh, you have to go to Gainom for a little while. We're going to get you to Gan to the Gan Eden eventually, but you have to go to Gainom for a little while." Why? I was a tzaddik, no? But yes, you were tzaddik for ninety years, but there is a period of time you didn't keep Shabbat. Like, yeah, but uh, what can I do? I can't go back in the future. I can't go back to the past. Technically, you can. How? He says, "Shuvu ve'ashivu." You do tshuva, and you bring others to do tshuva. Why? Because if others do tshuva because of you, they start doing mitzvot. They start keeping Shabbat. And every time they keep Shabbat, it goes to their account and also to your account. So now it counts as if every Shabbat that passes, you keep Shabbat, and they keep a Shabbat for you also. So it's like you kept two Shabbats. And if there's more than one person, then it's three or four or five or a hundred Shabbats. And that's how you get the end of this pasuk where it says, do tshuva and get others to do tshuva so your past sins do not serve as an obstacle for you. Your past iniquity. Why? Because if you show up to Shammayim with your past sins and you haven't fixed them, then there's still going to be an obstacle for you. And Shammayim. So the only way to really, truly do complete tshuva is by getting other people to do tshuva. Because there are certain sins that you can't fix them yourself. There are certain sins you won't even know you did until later on. The reality is that if you get other people to start doing tshuva, you do kiruv, you're helping yourself more than anybody else. And that's why the Mishnah here says that a person that learns lishma lives lishma, meaning he's learning and fulfilling Torah for the sake of heaven, he gladdens the omnipresent, but he also gladdens his creatures. Why? Because not only is he bringing other people closer to the Torah actively or as a role model, but also by introducing these people to the Torah, eventually he gladdens them. Because now they're going to see the lie they live their whole life of being secular, being an idol worshiper, being an atheist, and then they live as a Jew finally. And they see the beauty of being a Jew. If you're not enjoying Judaism, if you're not enjoying the life of Torah, that means you're doing it wrong. I'm not saying it's easy. Difficulty exists with or without religion. But if you're not enjoying the Torah life, you're doing something terribly wrong. Someone came to one of his employees and told, listen, I uh, forgot a briefcase at the office. Go get it for me. The guy goes to the other office. Remembers the description. Oh, he wanted a great briefcase with a stripe on it. He told me it's going to be around here in uh, in, in the office. Oh, and he takes the briefcase. He's like, wow, this is heavy. And he carries the briefcase. Takes him a little while because it's really, really heavy. And he sees his boss from across the hall. All the way down the hall, big building. He's like, hey, boss, boss, I got your case, I got your case. And he's like dragging it behind him. And the boss already from far away says, it's not my case. He goes, what do you mean? It's your case. 
And he's coming, he goes, stop, stop, it's just, it's, I'll come to you. It seems like you're struggling, I'll come to you. It's a nice boss. I'll come to you, and uh, it's, it's not my case. So finally he arrives, he goes, what do you mean it's not your case? You told me it's a great briefcase, this one's great. You told me it had a stripe, it has a stripe. You told me this, you told me that. It's a, he goes, yeah, all the descriptions it fits. In fact, it's identical to my case. Identical, on the outside. He goes, okay, so how could you tell it's not your case? How could you tell it's not your case from already, from far away? He says, because my case is full of diamonds. Diamonds are not heavy. Whatever you're carrying in there, I saw you struggling, it's too heavy. It cannot be my case. It cannot be my case. If your life of Judaism is heavy, it's not Hashem's Judaism. It's not the Torah. If the Torah is difficult for you, it's not Hashem's Torah. There's something wrong with what you're doing. There's something wrong with what you're doing. You're not studying Lishma. You're not doing it for the sake of heaven. You're doing it for the wrong reason. That's why it's heavy. You're doing it for money and you're not making money. So that's why it's heavy. You're doing it for recognition and no one's recognizing you. Ha! That's why it's heavy. You're doing it for the wrong reason and you're not getting the benefit of that wrong reason and that's why it's heavy. It has nothing to do with the Torah. It has to do with your bias. It has to do with your desires. It has to do with your mistake. Hashem's Torah is diamonds. It's priceless. People tell me all the time, yeah, I, uh, I'm struggling. What do you mean you're struggling? One woman tells me, yeah, you know, I'm really struggling with my Judaism. How are you struggling with your Judaism? Why? Why are you struggling? What's the matter? What, uh, all of a sudden God became nothing? Like, what happened? Yesterday you believed in God, today you don't believe in God? How does that happen? It's like me saying, by the way, all you got, you're not really here. None of you. Oh, you're here. Now I believe in you. No, now I don't believe in you again. It's like, what do you mean? How, how, how do you believe in God and then don't believe in Him? No, it has nothing to do with God. I believe in God. They tell you, I believe in God. It's just that, uh, you know, the uh, the Torah part. It's just all the mitzvot. It's, uh, it's, I'm struggling with it. As if there's a difference between the two. The Zohar Kadosh says, Hashem and the Torah, same thing. Hashem, Torah, Am Yisrael, same thing. What is it meaning? Hashem literally made all three himself, his Torah and his people, himself, cannot be separated. Thinking that the Torah is separate from Hashem, you have a wrong Hashem, you have a wrong God, wrong address. If you're struggling with your Torah, that's because there's some type of bias in it. There's something wrong in it. There's a wrong ingredient in it. Instead of sugar, you put salt. It looks the same. It's not. Instead of flour, you put cocaine. It looks the same. Just one of them kills you faster than the other one. They look the same, though. So in the movie, is that it? I have to think about what you guys are going to think. No, I never touched drugs in my life. But the point is, they look the same in the movies they do. I don't know. 
The point is, Abutai is that things look the same, but they're not. The guy looks like a tzaddik. But in reality, he's a rasha sometimes. Or he looks like a shah, but he's a tzaddik. So, a person needs to know that if he's making the makom, he's making a shemit barach happy because he's bringing his children back. He's bringing his creations back to him. Even if it's literally bringing goyim to become Noahides. It's also a mitzvah. It's not a bigger mitzvah. It shouldn't supersede a mitzvah of bringing a Jew back, but nonetheless it's a mitzvah. All that goyim. Because here it's talking about Mesamechet Abriyot. Abriyot is creations. Rashi over here says, this is because you're bringing Torah to the world that's pure. That's Lishma. Now who is this Rashi that we should listen to him? Rashi's father was Rabbi Yitzchak. the problem with the sugar drinks. They're addictive. You have to drink every two seconds. Once you drink one sip, it's 800 sips later. And then you're like, oh, can I have some more? So anyway, Rabbi Yitzchaki, he was Kodesh Kodeshim. Very simple person. And, uh, but had Yirat Shamaim of the generation, 900, 1,000 years ago almost. There was no such thing as atheists back then. No one had the foolishness of today. Being an atheist. You could be a kofer, but not an atheist. Heretic, because you have desires, you have wants, and things like that. Yes. But atheist? That didn't exist until recent generations. No one was that stupid back then. But Rabbi Tzaki, Misked didn't have any kids. Him and his wife loved each other for many years. No children, though. And not only no children, no money either. Struggling, like we see homeless people struggling today. Back then that was normal. Everybody was like that. Everybody was poor. One day, his wife tells him, honey, there's no food. Not that there's a, you know, we don't have a lot to eat. Maybe we're just going to eat chicken today. Or maybe we're going to just eat bread. No, there's, there's just nothing. There's no food, there's nothing. Go, maybe go do some work, maybe get some money, just do something. He goes in the field, talks to Hashem, prays to Hashem, looks down, he sees a beautiful rock. Picks up the rock, this might be worth something. Nice rock. Brings it to his wife. Honey, this must be worth something. A nice, such a nice rock like this. She says, yeah, it's a really nice rock. Maybe we can get uh, lunch and dinner for it. It's me, me, simple people. They go to the jeweler. Jeweler, Baruch Hashem, had Yirat Shamayim. He says, he looked, at this, he looked at this, he almost had a heart attack. He goes, you know what this is? This is such a rare diamond that only the king of this faraway country has such a thing in his throne. This is, this is, this is, where did you find this? Where did you, how did you get such a thing? 
He goes, please, please, let me sell it for you. Let me sell it for you. He goes, no, I, what, what are you going to get for it? Uh, uh, maybe we can get a lunch and dinner. He goes, what lunch and dinner? You are officially the richest man in the in the world. In the city. You're, you're huge. Whatever you want. Here, here's a couple of thousand dollars. Just, just uh, I'll pay you commission. Just let me sell this thing for you. Okay. Give him a few dollars. He, uh, they eat, they drink, they this, they that. He advertises the rock. Lo and behold, this king from the faraway country finds out he has the rock. And as you would have it, this is the rock that he needs. This is the diamond that he needs. Because the diamond that he had was lost. Accidentally, on purpose, somebody lost it. And uh, he has to replace it because a throne without missing rock uh, looks terrible. So he sent some uh, of his uh, people to go inspect inspect the rock. They came, they saw, like, yeah, okay, this is good. Where's the owner? We're going to bring him to our king and he's going to bite on the spot. So he calls Rabbi Tzaki, Rabbi Tzaki, listen, I got you the buyers. Not only is it a buyer, it's a buyer with money for sure. Who is it? It's the king himself. Okay. Sounds good. So I have to go with them? Yeah, yeah, I have to go on a trip. You go on a boat. And uh, you show it to the king. You show up to the king. He sees you. He's going to give you all the millions and millions of dollars. You go home with a chest full of Diamonds and cash and everything else. They'll honor you, they'll respect you, they'll have a party for you. Okay. He goes on the ship, tells his wife, okay, I'll be back. Hashem, at least when we come back, we'll have some food. We're not going to have to worry about money. We could open a yeshiva, we could open this, we could do this. He's on the ship. And he starts hearing the two people from the king talking. I start talking about the king. Like, wow, you know, the king's going to be really happy. He's going to be really, really happy. Because this rock, this diamond, this special diamond, it completes his worship for his idol. Because that's exactly what his idol likes. His idol, his false god, loves this rock. Loves this type of diamond. And the king has been sad since it's been missing. So now that his idol is going to be happy, he's going to be happy. As soon as Rabbi Yitzchaki thought, wait, I'm going to go and help Avodah Zarah. I'm going to go and make millions and millions of dollars off of Avodah Zarah. But the problem is, if I tell these people I don't want to sell, they'll just kill me and take the rock. So what do I do? He thought for a second, he had the idea. What's the idea? He says, this rock, you know how much this rock, he's showing off to them. Because you know how much this diamond is worth? They look at them and goes, yeah, obviously we know how much it's worth. That's what we're bringing you. We're bringing the honor of our king because we know how much it's worth. Because, yeah, but this rock, you know what it is? This rock could change everything. Yeah, yeah, relax with the showing off, buddy. We know. We know it's worth a lot. But you know this rock, and took and he makes pretend as if he falls over. The rock falls over, overboard, into the ocean. It's gone. 
$150 million gone. He starts going crazy. Oh no, what happened? They feel so bad for him that they don't kill him because they're like, we're going to kill him. The guy just lost $150 million in front of our eyes. We're going to kill him too. He's already killed himself. They get to the other side. There is a, oh, you know, they're all expecting them. Hey, how are you? No, no, don't ask. Put this guy back on the boat. He's a um, scan. He's a crazy person. What do you mean? He's a, yeah, we're going to tell you the whole story. They tell him, listen, this guy had $150 million. Yes, he has 150 cents in the bank. 150 cents. A dollar fifty he has in the bank. But he had $150 million in his hand. And he just dropped it in the ocean. Everybody's like, wow, let him go. He's miskel, patuf mitzvot. He's a, he's a skin. This guy, mental institution. Send him home, don't do anything. Don't, don't yell at him. No, he's already suffering for the rest of his life. He goes back on the boat, happy as can be that he just lost $150 million. As soon as he gets off the boat, back home, sees some old man covered in a robe getting closer and closer to him and then as soon as he's right up in his face right right now right at him he grabs him and goes you are gonna have a son this year and leaves after the shock he runs home and he tells his wife the good news honey I have amazing news yeah, where's, where, where's, where's the money? Where's the hundred fifty? It's coming in the trucks. It's coming with the caravans. Well, she's looking for, for the caravans, for the horses. It was a short trip, but hey, I mean, we don't need to go. Maybe they decide to give me the money now. Because no, no, I have fantastic news. Okay, first, I lost the diamond. She said, that's the good news. That's the good news. What's the... What's, that's the good one. He goes, it gets even better. I just saw Eliyahu Navi in his blue eyes. I just saw Eliyahu Navi, and Eliyahu Navi said, we're going to have a son. That year, they had a son. What they call him? Rashi. Why did Rashi come to Rabbi Yitzchaki? Why? Because Hashem Yitzchak saw, you are willing to give up everything for me. I'll give you somebody that's going to publicize that for the rest of the rest of the world. You're willing to give up every. You're willing to give up all the recognition, all the money, all the fame, all the stuff you need for what? Not to make one sin that no one will even say it's a sin. Why? No one's going to know. It's like there's a bunch of rabbis uh, next to the king saying, "No, no, no, you can't sell it to him. Uh, we're going to put you on cherem." No, well, if there was any rabbi, they say, listen, you're going to get my sale, right? You're going to get my sale. Sell it, sell it. You're going to get my sale, though. No one's going to be, other than Hashem, no one's going to be a witness to this sin. Person has Yirat Shamaim, he knows that Yirat Shamaim is not about what you do in front of people. Yirat Shamaim is what you do when you're not in front of people, because you know that Hashem is there. And that's why he had the merit to have a son to publicize the Torah to such an extent that if it wasn't for Rashi, 
we today would not understand a single word in the Gemara. A single word in the Tanakh. Single word. We wouldn't understand anything. You cannot read Torah without Rashi. You can't. You read Torah without Rashi, you might as well read Chinese. You might as well read... Uh, you, might, you have no idea what you're doing. Why? You're going to read like the Christians. You're going to read it literally. You're going to read everything literally. You're going to think that... Uh, you know, that uh, um, Shaul HaMelech became king at one years old. Because it says Shaul HaMelech, when he became king, it was uh, like a baby, one-year-old baby. So people think, oh yeah, the Christians think, oh yeah, Shaul HaMelech became king when he was one years old. How you can become a king when you're one years old? What, are you retarded? Is something wrong with you? How do you become it? What are you going to do? Gaga, gaga, kill them? What are you going to say? Oh, change my diaper. Okay, then go kill them. Okay, change the diaper first though. Like, what are you going to say? Shaul HaMelech became king at one years old. Is something wrong with people? No, meaning Shaul HaMelech, when he became king, he was so clean of sins. He was so holy. He was as clean as a one-year-old baby. That's what it means. But the imbeciles, that uh, Kofrim, heretics and all kinds, say, no, no, he was a one-year-old baby king. A little baby king. Rabotai... Learning Torah is no joke. It's funny, but it's no joke. Why? Because there's a lot of reward that Hashem wants to give us. A lot of reward that Hashem wants to give us. Ultimately, the reason why is because the Kabbalah says that Hashem created the world for the sake of sharing His goodness. Because he's good, and therefore he wants to create good, as we've talked about many times in the past. So when somebody learns Torah Lishma, learns Torah for the sake of Torah, follows Hashem for the sake of following Hashem, not because it makes sense to him, not because he's expecting some type of a reward, but simply because Hashem said so. This enables Hashem to carry out His ultimate desire, which is to give Him good. Hashem created you to give you good, but He also created a law that He's not able to give you good unless you do good. So by doing the ultimate good of following Torah for the sake of following Torah, you are enabling Hashem to do what He exists to do, which is to do good, to give you good. The only reason you, you're, you exist is for him to give you good. So by learning Torah Lishma, you're enabling Hashem. In essence, you've become partners with Hashem in fulfilling His desire, if you can even say such a thing. So to speak, this is the ultimate love that you can show Hashem. And that's why the next part says, a person that does such a thing, it makes him fit to be righteous, devout, fair, and faithful. This learning Torah Lishma, oh, actually, first says, 
this Torah will clothe him in humility and fear of God, and it makes him fit to be righteous, devout, fair, and faithful. Meaning that when a person learns Torah for the sake of learning Torah, he doesn't have to have any ulterior motives. He doesn't have to have any ambitions. Oh no, I'm going to learn because I want to become some big rabbi. I'm going to learn because I want to write a book. I'm going to learn because I want to do this. I want to learn. No, no, no. The ultimate good that you can attain in this world, you can attain simply by learning Torah Lishma. You can perfect your midot by simply learning Torah for the sake of learning Torah. And all of the success that Hashem wants to give you, reward that Hashem is going to give you, He's giving you. You don't have to have that desire yourself. You're going to get it anyway. In fact, if you're doing it for that desire, you're ruining it yourself. Emunat Israel says that these four attributes of being a tzaddik, a chassid, a yashar, a neeman, a righteous, a devout, a fair and faithful person, are the attributes of making a person into a perfect human being. This is the attributes of perfection. Being righteous, being a tzaddik, in the, in the, when it comes to emunah. If you learn Torah Lishma, you'll have a much easier time attaining real emunah. Much easier time. Why? You already have a good, healthy foundation. A chassid, meaning someone that is devout to the law, beyond the letter of the law, meaning he does above and beyond the law, is going to become your second nature. You're going to be, a, you don't have to wear the uh, strimal and the uh, black and white. Your nature will be chassidut. In Shemaim, they're going to call, oh, is, uh, is uh, David a chassid? Which chassidut is he uh, in? He's chassidut uh, Hashem. It's the best one in town. Chassidut Hashem. In Shemaim, they're going to call you chassid. Fair, meaning yashar, when it comes to his emotions. What does it mean, yashar? Meaning that your thinking will be aligned with the Boreid Barach. You're going to be straight. There's no right, left, maybe I should do this, maybe I should do that. You have clarity. This is what I need to do. Maybe I can't do it now, but this is what I need to do regardless. You're not going to lie to yourself like most people lie to themselves. And you're going to be faithful and honest in your words. You're never going to distort the truth. One of the most difficult parts for people in their journey of doing tshuva is their past. Now I don't mean their past because of their sins. That's obvious. But that's not a, that's not a difficulty that I'm referring to. One of the most difficult things for people is to really value themselves 
appropriately. Most people distort their own values in the wrong places. When it comes to materialism, when it comes to physicality, they think that they're smarter than everybody else, they think that they're better than everybody else, they think that they deserve more than everybody else, they're better looking than everybody else. She could literally be a a mini Gargamel and still think she's the best looking one in her school. He could literally be halfway to the Abalbanel crazy institution but still think that he's the smartest person in the shul. People have a distorted view of themselves when it comes to physicality, when it comes to materialism. They think naturally that they're much better than they are. But when it comes to spirituality, all of a sudden, everybody's a loser. All of a sudden, oh, I can't do this. Too much for me. I can't, I can't keep Shabbat. It's a lot. I keep this Shabbat. But I can't promise after this Shabbat. I can't promise. I can be modest when I go to shul. When I go to shul, I'll be modest. But I can't, I can't wear this clothes all the time. It's so hot. It's hot. They tell you it's hot. Like as if they live in the desert. And there's no air conditioning in every single room in the world today. So hot. I could be this and I can't do this. I can't, everybody has conditions. I cover my hair here at home. I wear a tzitzit at home. I'll be, I'll be righteous at home when no one else sees me. When I'm sleeping, I'll be really righteous. Tzadik, Yoshin. Tzadik Shoteh, the Gemara says. Tzadik Shoteh. Some people... Gemara in Masechet Sota, page 29, says there's something called a Tzadik Shoteh. What's Tzadik Shoteh? Tzadik Shoteh, Chasit Shoteh, Chasit Shoteh. Chasit Shoteh meaning somebody that's trying to be overly righteous to the point where he's like a drunk person. He's really a liar. Why? He sees a woman, he's studying in the woods. It's probably part of like some Chasidut or something. And uh, he sees a woman drowning. In the river. She says, oh wow. Poor woman. I wish I could save her, but I can't. Because if I save her, I'm going to touch her. And she's nida maybe. And maybe I'll be attracted. And I'll, I won't watch my eyes. And, and who knows what's going to happen. I can't sin. I can't sin. So he lets her die. Because chas v'shalom he sins. That's a chasit shoteh. Chasit shoteh. That is a foolish, pious person. Ma, it's Sota 21, 21, not 29, 21b. But when it comes to righteousness, when it comes to spirituality, we lie to ourselves, we lie to ourselves constantly telling ourselves, almost like a mantra, I can't do this, I can't do this, I can't be modest, I can't keep kosher, I can't be honest, I can't be this. When it comes to physicality, when it comes to materialism, we think that we could achieve everything. We could be millionaires in six months. We could be, uh, you know, invent the next thing to the to, to, to slice bread. Where there's, we could be the next president. We could be everything. But when it comes to spirituality, all of a sudden we're all balemum. Why? Why do we have such a yetzerah that fools us constantly? Hashem says. The righteous will ultimately walk with him in Gan Eden. 
Meaning he'll walk with them like as if he's among them. You'll be right next to me, he says, in Ganeden. Meaning that the significance that a person can reach is to literally be standing next to Hashem Barach. And you're saying you can't keep Shabbat. You're saying you can't be modest. You're saying that you can't do anything in the Torah. What's That's something wrong with it. Hashem says, you can be literally just like me. He says, the only thing that's going to separate us is the fact that I'm God. Like Paro said to Yosef Tzadik, the only thing that separates us is the kiseh. Just a formality. But in reality, you're in charge. It says to you, Paro says in a few parashot, we're going to read it, uh, Yosef Tzadik, when he became the viceroy of Egypt. Paro says to him, hey, you have the ring, you could do whatever you want. The only thing that separates us is that uh, technically I'm the king, but it's all under you. Hashem says the same thing. He says, ultimately the righteous, you'll walk right next to me. I'll be walking right next to you. So on one hand, you're saying the Creator Himself is saying that our potential is enormous. But yet we think that we can't even barely finish a Masichit. We can't barely give a shield because we don't know anything. All of a sudden we forget. Or we do the... Everything we're like retarded. Why? Why Why is that? How is it How is it that there's such a wide dis- variance between the two? I mean, there's a huge difference. How could it be? If it was money, Hashem will tell us, listen, you, I didn't give you the gift. You're not going to make money. You're going to be broke your whole life. No, no, Hashem, I'm going to prove you wrong. What? <laughs> I don't want to give you money. Mine's the money, mine's the goal. I just have you have money. No, no, Hashem, I have an idea. I have an idea. Maybe I have an idea. Maybe I could do something else to make money. It's like for physicality, we're like trying to prove Hashem wrong. But when it comes to spirituality, the purpose of our creation, everybody constantly tells themselves they can't do it. Why? I love you again, I love Shalom. Says he heard the story maybe 35 years from the time that he said this lecture. This is, so this is probably a story he heard maybe 50, 60 years ago. Maybe longer. By one of the Gdolim in Yerushalayim at the time, he says there was one time a uh, farmer, innocent farmer, not much of a brain, not much of a genius, but he knew his trade. What you know? He knew he knew what he had to do. He grew some chickens. Everybody that wanted a chicken, they came to him. So one day, this farmer has a customer. The customer says, "Yeah, I'm looking for a chicken." Be my guest. He shows him he has hundreds and hundreds of chickens, and the guy comes in there. And he looks, and he looks at the farmer, and he looks at the chickens, and he's confused. He's like, I can have any chicken I want. Because sure, whatever you want. Because all of these chickens, anything you want, buddy. I'm a little busy right now. It's 5.30 in the morning. I have to feed the, the other animals. So just pick something quick. The way, it's all the same price? He goes, no, just the weight, depending on the size. Also, so if it's a little bigger, it's a little more expensive, he goes, yeah, instead of one shekel, it's two shekels. That's it. It's not that much of a difference, but make it quick. I got stuff to do. 
Can I have that one that, 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 really, oh, you want the black chicken over there? He goes, yeah, yeah, that black and white chicken over there. That's, that one? He goes, yeah, it's a big one. Yeah, yeah, I want that one. Takes it, puts it on the scale. He says, oh, this one is four shekels. Really? It's four shekels? Yeah, it's four shekels. Gives him the four shekels. The guy couldn't believe what's happening here, but he said, okay, fine, what can I do? But now, he drives in his car and he's looking at the bird next to him and he can't believe what just happened. And he goes to the mountains, he takes the bird out, he picks him up with both of his hands because it's so big. And he whispers to the bird, you're an eagle, fly. And he throws it in the air and the eagle flies away. Now, that's the mashal. Why did the eagle not eat all the chickens? Why did the eagle not eat all the chickens? I mean, the eagle is not exactly a friendly bird. If you see eagles, how they treat each other, the battles they have, they literally, it's, uh, they, one of them has to die when they have a battle in the air and they keep dropping at uh, 60, 70 miles per hour all, all the way to the ground wherever, unless, unless they separate. Eagles are vicious animals. Why don't the eagle just eat all the birds? If you ever see an eagle, the wings of an eagle can reach eight meters. I'm talking about huge monsters from here to there. Huge. You could just take all, just each chicken today for breakfast, chicken for lunch, chicken for dinner. Chicken souffle, chicken uh, grilled chicken, chicken schnitzel, chicken this, chicken that. How come he's not eating them? Because this little eagle, this big eagle used to be a little eagle. And one day this farmer who didn't know right or left saw the little bird, little black ugly bird, he saw it. And all he saw in his life was chickens. So he figured this little bird is just an ugly bird. Ugly chicken. So he put, the, he put the eagle, the little baby eagle, that just came out of the egg and lost its mother, and he put it with the rest of his chickens. This eagle didn't know it was an eagle. Why? He was surrounded by chickens. Surrounded by chickens. So it never flew. It never flew. It never thought it was different. There's no mirror that says, oh, you're an eagle. No, like, uh, listen, uh, we're going to do some uh, uh, intervention. All the chickens surround them. Listen, uh, eagle, uh, we have to tell you the truth. We're, we're not your parents. There's no intervention. The guy is an eagle, but he thinks he's a chicken. So he never uses his wings, and he just jumps up and down, jumps up and down, just like all the chickens. One year, two years, three years, four years, and he happens to be a really big chicken. Only ten times the size. Big deal. He never tried to fly. Until the guy that bought him for four shekels whispers in his ear and says, you're an eagle. Fly. And he pushed him and forced him to fly. That's the mashal. The nimshal. The real deeper lesson is 
We are the baby eagle. Surrounded by chickens. Surrounded by losers of our past. The public schools we attended. The secular people we surrounded ourselves with. The irreligious religious people we were you know, friendly with. The people that pretended to be but really weren't. And the reality is, Hashem is telling us, you're the eagle, stop acting like a chicken, you look stupid. But in order to be an eagle, you have to act like one. You have to do things that are difficult. You have to listen to Musar at 11 o'clock at night, that's punching you in the face, reminding you there's a lot of tshuva to do, even though you've already been doing tshuva, for five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten years already. In order to be an eagle, there's no excuses. This is too much. This is too little. This is too this. This is you're the eagle. Nothing's too big for you. The only reason why you think you can't be a big tzaddik. The only reason why you think. You can't have the highest level of emunah. The only reason why you think that you can't be the most modest woman in the world today, like Sarai Menu, is because you're still acting like a chicken. Because you've been surrounded by chickens your whole life. God is here to tell you, through His Torah, stop acting like a chicken. If you don't do it yourself, he's going to push you. He's going to throw you off the mountain and force you to become the eagle that you really are. One way or the other, you have to become an eagle because that's why he created you. It's better you decide for yourself sooner. But one way or another, you're flying. Stop acting like a chicken. All of the difficulties that we hear about, the punishments, the, the things that are not good and this and that, that's all normal for an eagle. An eagle is not afraid of Musal. An eagle is not afraid of lifting the house on his wings. An eagle is not afraid to fly all the way to the heavens. The eagle flies into the heavens, the Chachamim say, until his wings start burning. The eagle flies even though he knows it's dangerous. Why? Because that's the way of being an eagle. You want to be a Jew? You want to be someone that's considered the chosen one? The son or daughter of Hashem? You have to be an eagle. Stop acting like a chicken saying it's too difficult. This is too this. I can't afford it. I can't do it. I can't, I can't. That's only chickens talk like that. The fact that you come from a past that's not a bunch of eagles doesn't mean anything. Why? Avraham Avinu came from a worse past than you. Avraham Avinu's own father was the Walmart of idolatry. Everyone else in the world were idol worshippers. Not chickens, idol worshippers. You couldn't have a worse past than Avraham Avinu. But he became Avraham Avinu. Why? 
he realized that's the point. Yes, it's difficult. So is anything else in the world that's worthwhile? This Rabotai is the most important thing that you need to remind yourself of every single day. When you're going to serve Hashem, Avodat Hashem requires hard work, requires pain, requires Mesirut Nefesh. If you're not in pain, you're not doing something right. Why? Because in order to become an eagle, pain becomes part of your day-to-day. When did Hashem talk to Avraham Avinu? Parashat Vayra. Why Parashat Vayra? Why didn't He talk to him before? Because in Parashat Vayra it says, Avraham Avinu just finished the Brit Milah. He finished the Brit Milah, he was in pain. Now talk to him. Now talk to him. Until then he didn't talk to him. Why? Because to be an Eved Hashem requires a little bit of pain. Requires Mesirut Nefesh. You're all eagles. All of Am Yisrael is full of eagles. Acting like chickens. It's time for us to be the eagles that we're supposed to be. Time for us to be the eagles. Bezad Hashem, this will help us a little bit more with our Avodat Hashem. I think we're going to need at least another one, maybe two more shurim for this Mishnah. It's just very, very long and beautiful. Baruch Hashem. But if you have any questions, we can finish uh, with that. Wait, he's a non-Jew? He's a Jew and she's a non-Jew? Okay. Okay. What's the question? Question is what what do they go from here? She was expressing that she was converting, but at the same time the husband is only interested in meeting a religious teacher. And they have kids? They have kids. The question is if multiple multiple part question. One, a uh, Jewish guy non-Jewish women are together with kids. He's not religious, but he's trying to convince her to convert to Judaism for some strange reason. Uh, What do you do? How do you do all that? Okay, so first and foremost, you know that even if she converts and she becomes the biggest tzaddikah since Sarai Menu, that still does not change the status of the kids meaning the kids were born green. Now, if she converts them, if they're under 12 years old for a, for a girl and 13 years old for, for, for a boy, they're still going to have to come back at 12 or 13 years old, back to the Bedin, where the Bedin will ask them if they are going to choose to remain Jewish, assuming that they've been going to Yeshiva and they've been living a Jewish life. But at that stage... Those kids, let's assuming that they answer yes and they want to remain Jewish, those kids officially are not considered his kids. 
or hers for that matter or hers uh, so this creates you know certain issues for certain people that think that you could just fix all of the past problems by simply uh, you know converting and everything is going to be work out it doesn't work it's not that simple number one I mean they're still their biological kids they still have to take care of them they still have to honor their parents and so on but the sin that was made as far as having kids with a non-jew it's not so easy to fix it if you're trying if you're understand what I'm trying to say number two no real beddin no real beddin will convert a non-jewish woman unless the man that she's with is religious meaning if he's not religious if he's not keeping shabbat mitzvot no real beddin will convert her why because they would be afraid that if she converts now she's a she's a goya and of course she's sinning as a goya she's not allowed to be with a jew but nonetheless you know they're not part of that sin but now if they convert her to be a jew and she wants to keep mitzvot but her husband who's a jew doesn't want to keep mitzvot then now he's not going to want to uh, let her keep tarat mishpacha and every t- every time they're together it's isur karet but now she's she's being punished as a jew she's being sinner as a jew no bedin will ever allow such a thing to happen that's a vicious thing to do to a person to to convert someone knowing that uh, they're going to be a rasha that is worse than hitler so no bedin will convert such a person at least not a real bedin that's number two number three if she converts in a real beddin with a real rabbi with real uh, things most likely she's not going to want to stay with this husband of hers because she's going to become religious and the more religious she becomes the less in common they're going to have so it's going to become very very difficult for them to stay together anyway just from experience i could tell you that next thing is um as far as um her saying he's manipulating her, manipulating her to convert, that's already a bad sign that she really doesn't want to convert. And if she thinks that uh, he's manipulating her, manipulated her in the past to do it, and something like that, there's something wrong with that. Uh, but uh, I may be misunderstanding that part. I just. Uh, oh, they did a conversion already in the past. She wants to just do it again. Ah. Oh, okay. So, so she they cheated people before, but she realized she can't cheat God. Now, is she keeping anything now? Is she learning anything now? Is she living in a religious life now? But yeah. What about her? Is she keeping anything? No. Okay. So she's all talk, no action. She has to if she wants to convert she has to start learning and doing as if you know he doesn't matter she can't wait for him to do it meaning if she's going to convert she has to convert with or without him if she's converting for him most likely the bedin will not let it happen but even if she fools the bedin like she fooled the first one uh then in Shemaim they still won't count it. If she's converting for him, in Shemaim she'll, she's come, she, she comes in. Christine, she comes out Christine. Nothing happens. She could change her name 500 times, well, nothing will happen. So if she's going to convert for real, 
she has to convert for the sake of Hashem, not because of her husband. So meaning that she has to start learning and doing things now. With the assumption that she's most likely going to get a divorce. If she's not willing to do that, then she's not ready to convert. People think that conversion in Judaism is supposed to be easy, welcoming, uh, like in Christianity. That's not how it is. Am Yisrael has been suffering for the last 3,300 years in order to be Am Yisrael. You can't just walk in and assume that uh, you're going to be excluded from it. It's very difficult. Why? Because it means something. It's something meaningful is difficult to do. In Shemaim, not everybody uh, has a merit to convert. Not everybody has a merit to even do tshuva. Even if they're a natural-born Jew, they could still die as a rasha because they don't have a merit to do tshuva. So, a person needs to know that it's a uh, Hashem is not, uh, you know, Social Security office, they'll accept you uh, regardless. <laughs> you have to have merits. If she wants to truly convert, she has to start changing her ways now. With or without this husband. Usually people like that, they're so far away from each other as a couple, even without religion, that most likely they'll get a divorce anyway. Most likely. If, she, if she's trying to be religious, but she's waiting for him, that means she's not trying to be religious. She's just trying to tell him what to do. And if he doesn't want to listen to her, that means he doesn't really care so much about her opinion. He cares about something else. There's relationship problems with people like this. Meaning that they are uh, very far away from where they're supposed to be. And unfortunately, there's a, uh, they're, much, they're ten times more work than the average person. In today's world, there's just not enough time to spend on such people. There's just not. It's not that you don't care. That there's too many other people that want to do the right thing. They just need some guidance. There's too many people that want to convert for the right reason. Go help them. There's too many people that want to do tshuva. They just don't know how to. Go help them. There's too many people that would do tshuva if you simply tell them. Go help them. The people that are problematic or they're lying or they're cheating the system or they're trying to fool you, things like that, I have a one-strike system. You lied to me one time, Delete. There's, not, there's just too much, too many people, too much time. There's just not enough time. Too much time. You know, it's a, uh, people think they're, they're doing you a favor. You know, so you have to tell them, listen, you want me to help you? I'll help you, but from now on, act as if I'm Moshe Rabbeinu. Everything I say, you have to do. They're not ready. See you in the next Gilgul. It's not, it's, not, it's not about, it's not being, uh, it's just reality. They're not ready. They're not ready. You know, people say, oh no, you know, I'm, I'm, you know they send me messages. I'm coming to show tonight. They don't come. Why are you telling me? Why are you telling me? That you're going to come, but you don't come un- constantly. Oh, I'm going to come, but they don't come. I'm going to come, but I don't come. What, what do you think? Like if you told me that you're going to come, and then you don't come, it makes it less? Or they tell you, oh yeah, I haven't come, I was, uh, you know, I, my, my throat hurt. Or oh, my foot, my foot hurt. Or, or, or like, okay, you didn't come. Like, it's not school. Now, I don't take attendance at the end. Oh, Steve, oh, Steve didn't show up today. I'm mark him absent. You know, three absences, I'm going to fail you. Three absences, I'm going to fail you. You already got two, buddy. You already got two. I'm gonna, you know what? 
I'm not even. I'm not even going to wait for numbers. I'm going to call your mom. What's the number? What's the number? I'm going to call your mom. I'm going to see why is he not coming to shul on a Tuesday at eleven o'clock at night? I'm going to call your mom. Give me a, what's your mom's number? What's her name? What, what's her name? I want to, like. What do you think it is? Is attendance? Was it school? People are crazy. You come to shul, you're, you're, you're pretty much trying to take from the genome that you're in, try to put you in Gan Eden. Well, well, what's what's the problem with people? People think that they can fool the system or they're doing somebody a favor. Rabotai, time to wake up. Time to wake up. Same thing a lot of people show up late on a regular basis. I ask, oh, where are you? How come you're late every single time, an hour and a half? What are you doing? You, have, you work at night, you're lifting buildings at 10 o'clock at night. What are you doing? Oh, no, I was making sins. Making sins. You don't want to know where I was. No, I don't know where you was, but I don't understand why you show up two hours late. You're disturbing. Rather, you don't show. It's not that I mind that a person shows up late. It's just that on a regular basis, there's something wrong. Like, what's going on? What are you doing at night? Point is, you have to understand. These shurim, this is what's going to take us out of the problems that we're in and put us in Ganeidin. If a person doesn't realize that, doesn't recognize that, you can't help him. Can't help them. You can't help a person who doesn't want to be helped. So those people, they're still continuing to try to fool each other, fool the rabbis, fool Hashem, fool everybody as if they're the only smart people in the world and everybody else is a moron. People like that, put them on a do not call list. That's in the business world, we have a do not call list. You call certain people and say, you don't call me again. So you put them on a do not call list where you can't call them again. People like that, tell them, listen, when you're ready, you let us know, but... At this point, you're acting like children, as if you're doing us a favor. Not doing us a favor. That's also the reason why I told uh, the uh, the people that were asking about the bedin that if you want to do it for money, I'm not interested. Like, of course, you have to charge people money for for conversions, for to bring the dayanim from this. And of course, you have to do it. But if your main goal is to make money from people, where you're going to think you're going to charge people a lot of money. And it's a, uh, you're not going to be careful with who's converting. As you, pretty much all you're going to be careful from is that uh, they're, they're giving you currency in dollars. That's the only thing you care about? I'm not interested. Why? I'm trying to get the gun in. To convert people is very simple. You get people to give you some money. You can tell them, yeah, 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 you're, you're converted. What religion do you want? Muslim? Oh, no. Jewish? Oh, you're Jewish. Like, whatever. People, you know. But... To really convert a, a person and take him from Genom to Ganeden requires a lot of work. Requires a lot of work. And a person needs to know that they, that they have to do the work. If they're not interested in doing the work, can't help them. Next. Yes? Okay, you said that and, uh, we understand very good, very well uh, the, the Tanakh for Krashi. What, what do you think about Rambam? Amazing. Of course, I mean, it's a, all, all of the Rishonim, all of the uh, the, the sages uh, from that time, from before, from after, are giants of giants. There's no, no questions asked. It's a, uh, it's just that Rashi literally made, put commentary on virtually every single verse in the Torah and the Gemara. Whereas the Rambam or the Ramban... Uh, both of them made some commentary, but not on. They didn't cover as much ground as uh, as Rashi did. Like you'll see, for example, if you have I don't know the regular common uh, uh, Chumash that has translation as art scroll, 
you'll see that virtually every verse has a commentary by Rashi, but only once in a while is there commentary by Rambam, or by Ramban, or by Rabbi Hirsch, or others that are out there. Many, many of the sages uh, put commentary, made the Chidushim on the Torah. Till this day, you see new Chidushim, Rabbi Spivak, uh, Shichyeh, he just came out with a book on the entire book of Bereshit, his own Chidushim that he heard from his rabbis or his own, uh, on the entire book of Bereshit. But he doesn't cover every single verse. Most of the Chachamim that come out with the book, they say, okay, so let's say there's a whole parasha, there's one or two or three verses in the entire parasha that they have a Chidush about. But the rest of the verses, another, let's say, 130, 140 verses that are there, they're not covered. So, same with uh, with the other Chachamim, is that they covered a lot, but it wasn't as much as Rashi. Rashi literally covered practically everything. And a few times he didn't cover it, he said, I don't know. I think there's twice in the entire Torah, twice or three times in the entire Torah, where Rashi says, I don't know. Like, I don't know what this means. Which shows you how much he actually knew. Meaning, if you only twice in the entire Torah, he says, I don't know what this means. So that means he knew everything else. So, it's, it's extraordinary. Of course, the Rambam, Ramban, and uh, you know, many, many others, they're Kodesh Kodeshim, they're, they're amazing. But uh, if a person that uh, learns commentary is uh, typically going to read Rashi plus somebody else. But the minimum requirement is Rashi because that's the only way you're going to cover pretty much everything. Um, there is a series uh, called Me'am Loez that uh, was originally written in Ladino about 300 year, years ago by Rabbi Yaakov Kuli. Uh, and then uh, he, it was translated to English, and then it was translated to Hebrew. Meaning, most people think it was started as Hebrew. No, actually, the last translation was Hebrew. Anyway, he didn't write the whole series. He wrote uh, about the first, I think about half, or a little more than half of the uh, Chumash, commentary on it. But he brings commentary from across the Torah, from Azor, from Gemara, from Rashi, from Tosfot, from Rambam, Ramban. So when you read his book, you read, you're reading every verse and you're reading 500 different sources of commentary uh, and you see how beautiful it all lines up together. It all, you know, there's 70 different opinions, so if you will, but they all fit in together like a puzzle. You know, it's not that one is contradicting the other. So they all fit in. Uh, so anyone that uh, is ready should invest into that series and, and, and read the more extensive commentary uh, over there. But if, if someone that's a beginner should get themselves a art school chumash with uh, some commentary by Rashi, and that's plenty to, uh, to at least uh, get through the Torah um, on a regular basis. Next.
No, the uh, the blessings is one of the seven laws that the rabbis inst- uh, instituted, uh, meaning that the uh, the bless all of the blessings that we have, whether it's the blessings for washing your hands or blessings of uh, before you eat bread or blessing of after after you leave the bathroom, that was instituted by the rabbis by the sages after Matan Torah. So there are six hundred. And 13 mitzvot from the Torah. And there are seven that were added by the rabbis with the power of the Torah. And one of those seven was those blessings. So at the time of Avraham Avinu, there wasn't such a thing as these blessings. Uh, but he, he, he actually prayed to Hashem. He created Filat Shachrit. So he would pray to Hashem. And he would talk to Hashem. But he didn't have the, uh, the blessings that we have today. It's not meant for non-Jews. It's meant only for Jews. The uh, the blessings are meant for Jews for the most part. There are some blessings that a person who is not Jewish is allowed to say. The Gemara in Maseret Brachot talks about how they put together the uh, the Berkat Amazon. The uh, the first part, the first paragraph was written by Moshe Rabbeinu. Second paragraph was by Yeshua Benun. Third one was by uh, David Melech. And uh, and his son Shlomo Melech, and the last one was by the Ansheknesed uh, Agdola. So you see, each part the Gemara in Masechet Barachot goes into the detail of not only who wrote it, but why they wrote it, and what was the original intention of it. So a person that wants to fulfill the Torah to its completion, a person that wants to uh, do blessings, keep the holidays, keep Shabbat must convert. For them to remain a goy for one second more than they have to is a sin that the Gemara says they'll have to pay for as a punishment. So a person should only remain a goy if he either has no desire to convert or he can't. It's not just, it's, he's a noose. It's beyond his, uh, his ability. He uh, lives, I don't know, he lives in a uh, Middle of nowhere, no Jewish community, and uh, the only thing Jewish is what he has on uh, the Bezat Hashem app and uh, YouTube. He doesn't have anything Jewish next to him. He can't, and he can't afford to move out into a Jewish community. Uh, or he's married to somebody for many years that's not, he doesn't want to get divorced from, and uh, she doesn't want to convert. And at least she's not an idol worshiper, but she's not ready to convert. So Hashem doesn't want everybody to get divorced. Some people, yes, some people, no. Everybody has to obviously evaluate their own case. But the point being is that if a person can convert, if he can convert, but he's delaying it for personal reasons, he not nothing that's nothing that's a, a legitimate reason. Meaning he's uh, delaying it because he's waiting to find, you know, a uh, I don't know, um, a better job first. He has a job now that technically can survive. But he wants to really, really like be okay. He wants to make sure that he has a surplus before he converts. He wants to save ten, fifteen thousand before he converts. He wants to, uh, you know, do all types of things that are above and beyond the, the, the necessary. That person is making a very big mistake, and obviously doesn't understand the value of converting. Uh, so, but if his delay of if his uh, delay of conversion is not due to him, it's simply because he still has to learn, he's not ready yet, or whatever it is, 
then he's fine. But anyone that wants to fulfill all of the mitzvot must convert. If they're not ready to convert, they should not fulfill all the mitzvot. Unfortunately, today, there are many goyim that are acting like Jews. And there are many so-called rabbis that are uh, helping them make the sin. They don't realize that instead of getting a blessing in Shemaim for doing what they're doing, they'll actually get punished for it. It's, they, they, the Gemara says that only a fool does something that he's not obligated to do. I mean, technically, when a person when a person does a blessing, if he's not Jewish, he doesn't have uh, the uh, obligation to bless. Number one, and he also doesn't get the merit for it either. So whether he does the blessing or he doesn't do the blessing, either way, it's just considered practice. So when a non-Jew puts on tefillin, there's no mitzvah in Shemaim. They don't say, "Oh, in Shemaim, look, uh, such and such late tefillin today, chazaku baruch." There's no chazaku baruch in Shemaim. It's just practice. It's just practice. It's like, for example, Leavdil, but, uh, you know, I, uh, when I was a kid, I used to play football. I used to play football in a, uh, and, uh, you know, before the actual game, game day, there was practice. Now, in practice, you try to score. You try to, you know, go into the end zone. But, so if, let's say, for example, during practice, you scored 100 touchdowns. Do you think anybody cares? No. Well, it's practice. It's not a real touchdown. It's practice, buddy. It's like <laughs> we put you in that position. It's not. Nobody cares. There's no like fans. Wow, look at this guy. He's the best. We're gonna sign him up. No one signed you up to nothing. Why? It's practice. It's nothing. Same thing. Same thing that when a person is in the process of conversion, it's good to do. You have to practice because eventually game day, uh, you know, uh, shows up, and you have to be ready at game day. You can't uh, be practicing on game day. But the same token, you can't expect anyone to uh, to give you a bonus for game for for practice. Uh, so that's what a person needs to know. Unfortunately, a lot of people get uh, so tied up with the practice that they actually think it's real. They start keeping Shabbat as if they're Jews, and they say, "Listen, I don't. Know, why should I convert? Why should I move? I already enjoy Shabbat. I already keep it. I already late tefillin. I already pray. I already have talit." I already look Jewish. I already act Jewish. Everybody thinks I'm Jewish. Let me just say, why do I need to go to a bed and lose all nonsense? I don't need to convert. And they don't realize that every single minute that they're alive, they're sinning from the Torah. So, unfortunately, there's a lot of people like that. And the, and the reason for it is because there's a lot of rabbis that are really Erev Rav, not Rav. They're, they're Erev Rav, and they're helping these people destroy themselves. They're trying to milk these people for as much money as possible. So they're telling them, you could act like a Jew, be like a Jew, think you're a Jew without really being a Jew. Just make sure, make check payable to such and such place. And don't listen to your own Reuven, because he'll tell you the truth and that'll ruin a whole scam. He'll ruin the whole scam, this guy. He always ruins scams. He's known for ruining scams. So unfortunately, there's, I mean, there's actually a couple of... Uh, a couple of clowns f- 
from uh, that uh, wrote a book that is making a lot of goyim sin. Uh, what do they call it? Um, the 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 world of the gear. This guy uh, David something David uh, uh, whatever and some other uh, cornflakes guy Coalfield whatever his name is. Anyway, these two clowns. You guys know this book. I'm sure anybody that's a uh, in the Noahide world knows this book. Or at least probably heard of it. Anyway, these two clowns changed Allah. They said that, no, no, you don't need to convert. You can keep all the laws. You keep Shabbat. And unfortunately, there's a lot of people that are following this. And they're acting as if they're Jewish. They're already buying tzitzit, filin, uh, you know, mezuzot. They're acting like they're Jews. Without actually going to a formal conversion. It's a very serious problem. And there's many big rabbis that went up, you know, publicly against these two clowns and uh, wrote a letter against them, uh, publicized the letter. It's on a few websites, a few places I've seen it. But the point is, Abutai, is that if a person wants to keep mitzvot, there's no shortcut. There's no easy way. There's no cheap way. If you're looking for it, you're looking for the wrong religion. Stay where you're at. Stay where you're at. Anything else? Again. And then, uh, in the end, behold, he saw three men coming to me. Vinesh Loshan, Ashim Nitzavim Alav. I'll say this, uh, say that the, the three men are three angels. Ken. Um, Ken, uh, three angels came to visit Avraham Avinu. Yes. Then it said, Abraham went and bowed down and say, uh, the text says, My Lord, and I'll read the Hebrew, I think it's uh, Adonai. Ken. Why did he call them? Uh, why did he call them uh, Adonai? Not even that. Is did Hashem? Does the text mean that Hashem came separately than these three men, or, or what it, exactly does the text say? Because he says first Hashem appeared to him, then he says he saw the three men, and then went and bowed. Now, so yeah. I'll say these are angels, but also says the text says you know Hashem appeared to him. Right. So what's so, Vayra elav Adonai be'elonei Mamre. Hashem appeared to him in the plains of Mamre, while he was sitting at the entrance of the tent, at the heat of the day. So the sages explain that this was the hottest day in history. Hashem took the sun out of its shell in order to do two things. Number one, to eliminate the possibility of anybody coming to visit uh, to visit Avraham Avinu, because he loved hosting guests, but he was uh, enduring a lot of pain. It was on the third day of his Brit Milah. Uh, but at the same token, Hashem went to fulfill the mitzvah of Biku Cholim, of visiting the sick. So he came and uh, uncovered himself to, uh, to, to disclose himself to Avraham, visited him, and they were talking. But as, as they were talking... Avram saw that there are three men, despite the heat being so hot as it is. He was standing at the uh, opening of the tent because he really yearned for guests. He loved hosting guests. He wanted to fulfill the mitzvah, to honor Hashem. 
So he was looking outside because he was looking for guests. Even though it was so hot and it's unlikely for a guest to come, still he was yearning for a mitzvah so much, he was just in hopes that it's going to happen. So while he was talking to Hashem, he saw that there are three people. And he ran and he told Hashem, Hashem, one second, let me, I'll be right back. I'll be right back. Let me go take care of these guests. So these three guests were three angels. And he wanted them to visit him so much that he literally laid on the ground and told them, you know, begging them to please let me host you as guests. So the question that should follow is that, wait a minute. Now that we understand there was two separate things, Hashem is one conversation, the angels is a separate conversation. Why did Avram leave Hashem. I mean, technically, all we're trying to do every day is pray to Hashem, learn His Torah, for what? To get close to Him. Avram was as close to Hashem as you can possibly get. He's talking to Him. You got to the highest level. So why are you leaving that to go help a bunch of Arabs? Because he didn't know there were angels. He thought there was three Arabs. So you're going to go leave the highest level of connecting to Hashem, which is talking to Him actually, and He's talking back to you to go help a bunch of Arabs? Chachamim say, it doesn't make any sense. So why? Because Avram yearned to serve Hashem so much that he knew that yes, although he's benefiting and he's enjoying talking to Hashem, it's the highest level of enjoyment you could possibly have as a being of any kind, spiritually or physically, is connecting to Hashem, is talking to Hashem. So although he's enjoying this, this is the ultimate pleasure, he says that it's even a bigger joy to serve him by fulfilling his mitzvot. So that's why he went and actually said, Hashem, it's great, it's amazing, this is the ultimate joy. But I know it's even better to go serve you in other ways. And that just gets a joy. This is like somebody's literally, at the, the ultimate joy. You can imagine whatever the ultimate joy of a person is. And he stops in the middle, she stops in the middle of the ultimate pleasure in the world, says, oh, hold on a second, let me go talk to these three Arabs, let me see what they want. Why? Because he loved the Shem to that extent. He loved the Shem to that extent. Ken, if it's a follow-up, you can follow-up. Few more, okay. Yes. Second shoe. Given that what? Now, first, first, was it uh, the talking to Hashem? Was it like Hashem physically talking to him, or just like prayer or something like that? That's the first question. And second, then um, if Hashem is talking to him, and the angel supposedly, you know, what? If it's physical, if it's Hashem is there, because it's Hashem appeared to him. No, it's no Hashem has no no body, no image of a body. There's no uh, like just like most most saw as Hashem, like did he like speak to him like face to face? Although you know. No, when they say Hashem spoke to Moshe Rabbeinu face to face, it doesn't literally mean that Moshe saw a face. It means it means that Hashem he spoke to him on and whenever he wanted, as if. You and I are speaking to each other comfortably whenever we wanted without necessarily making any type of uh, appointment. Hashem spoke to Moshe Rabbeinu and Moshe Rabbeinu spoke to Moshe as if they were colleagues. No one else could do that. Everyone else had to go through some type of process 
of going to a mikveh, certain prayers, certain learning, certain process, sometimes meditation, sometimes uh, epilepsy, dreams, all types of things that they would have to go through before talking to Hashem. Whereas Moshe Rabbeinu could simply be walking around, say, Hashem, what do you think? And Hashem would answer him on the spot. No, like... Uh, Preparation whatsoever. He was always ready. Okay. I understand that part. Now, that's what I wanted to know. If, if it's that, at the same level... No, it's not the same level as, as Moshe. The highest like, level of prophecy was... But that's what they mean by prophecy. Okay. The highest level by, of prophecy was by Moshe Rabbeinu. No one ever spoke to Hashem like Moshe Rabbeinu. So not even Adam Arishon. Okay. So when they say Hashem appears to him, most, most likely it's like... Prophecy. It's prophecy. prophecy. He's talking to him in some way. Uh, okay. It could be... Okay. Okay. Through uh, a uh, through his uh, mind, it could be through something else, but it's not at the same level of clarity uh, as Moshe Rabbeinu. Yeah. Now, as far as the, when, when he went to the to the to the to the, to the man mm-hmm. and say the angels and say, you know, my lord, Ken. why did he use that? And even even further further uh, when they, he was talking to the angels. And then I think when the angels asked about, about uh, Sarah, his wife, and then said the whole story, and how she was going to have, you know, uh, a baby uh, next year, and then and then Sarah laughed, and afterwards uh, one of the angels. Why did he use the word Adonai? Oh, yeah, that's that's the first one. And then fur- further, I think there, there was a part when I, the the men when they were talking, the men asked for Sarah, and then it first said they. Uh, the men, or the angels, if you will, ask her about Sarah, then he said, why the speech? Why from they ask for Sarah? And then afterwards, the he, which represents, like, Hashem said. It's like two people, like, the angels are talking, and then, you know, Hashem. So Hashem. when he says, He's talking to them, and the expression Adonai doesn't only mean a reference to Hashem. Same thing with Elohim. It doesn't always mean Hashem. It means my Lord. It's an expression. Elohim doesn't mean God. It could also mean my master. Uh, so it's a, you'll also see in Sefer Shmot, in the book of Exodus, Hashem says to, uh, to Moshe Rabbeinu, you'll be like a God to him, to Paro. What do you mean? He's turning uh, Moshe into uh, God? No. Meaning you'll be a master over him. You'll rule him. And many times in the Torah, you'll see that the word Elohim or Adonai are used not necessarily always for the sake of representing Hashem. Many times it's not. So it's very, that's why it's extremely important to learn the commentary because that's what's being explained in there of who is actually being talked to. Who, who are they referring to? It's very, very important to know who's talking. Like who's, who's saying this, who's saying that. Like your questions are critical questions when you read the Torah to know who's talking, who's saying what, who's in position, because sometimes uh, if you don't understand it, it, it it'll make it confusing, it could even make it sound heretical, where it would seem like there's more than one God, chas v'shalom, or that there is a uh, all types of uh, confusing things. So the details of the commentary is where that comes in. But in essence, in, in so many words, without having a whole shiur about it, the uh, reference here is that he's talking to the angels and he's, cause, he's calling them as out of respect, his masters, his lord, as if meaning, please come, I'll give you all the respect you want, I'll feed you all this, all that. That's like a, uh, you know, it's like a, uh, um, 
show, show a sign of respect uh, for for your guests or, or for someone that you don't necessarily know, but you're giving him all the uh, kavod in the world, all the honor in the world for for the sake of making him feel comfortable. And that's made, uh, it's referenced many times in the Torah. But um, the reason I ask that is because the text, I you know, it's from the Chumash. Mm-hmm. I know it's at home. Okay. I think it's a, trust, a trusted translation. Okay. They put the the Lord okay. the, as the the, uh, the you know capital for that verse. 